Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Before we dive in, real quick. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests, all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentous.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. All right, let's do the show. What's up, podcastaholics? 
Roll On is back. Adam Skolnick and I are inside your ear hole, infecting you with ideas, big and small. Good to be here. Good to see you, my friend. Uh, before we get into it, in addition, as you may or may not know, we also, in the course of doing this show, conduct a little bit of show and tell. We got some good ones for you on that front today. And we round it all out by answering some of the questions dropped on our voicemail, which you can ring up at 424-235-4626. If you happen to be watching at http colon backslash backslash www.youtube.com slash rich roll. <laughs> That's very thorough. <laughs> yes, just so there's no confusion. Uh, please take a second to hit that subscribe button. Maybe even click that notification bell or the like button. If you're feeling frisky, leave a comment below with your thoughts on audio. You must also subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify because that is the rule. The rule of life. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I've got my, my right glute is a little twingy since you're asking. Theragun. <laughs> There's a there's a ritual application <laughs> yes. for every problem. I've in your got life. a product for you, my friend. <laughs> I have the Theragun. Um, what it's happened? Good, you know, I don't know. It's just like it's. I've had a piriformis that is cranky mm. for a long time, and sometimes it's more cranky than others. And I think yeah. it's really what it is. I think you know what it is is that if I'm not doing my yoga like five days a week at least in the morning. Um, it, it my body tells me you got to get on that Goggins stretching routine. I do three hours a day. I could, I could, many I could be more is. Goggins. There's no question about it. <laughs> we, we all could. Yes. There's a lot of room there. Yeah, there's a lot of room yeah. between where I am and Goggins. Yeah. Uh, I'm comfortably at the 38 to 40 percent. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's I, I'm that, not even sure I'm there. Actually. You might be over-indexing there a little bit. <laughs> I might be. I might yeah. Be. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, happy belated Earth Day, Rich. Happy Earth Day yourself. Every day is Earth Day. That is the refrain as trite as that may sound. Yes, every day. I was remiss, I didn't post on Instagram my happy Earth Day, oh, Earth you Day You thoughts. didn't virtue signal on Earth Day? No, I didn't do that. Oh. I'm feeling like it's a bad- Missed opportunity. A bad progressive, I guess. I, I, you know what I, just, I feel part like? Part of me is like, it's sort of like Valentine's Day. It's like, right. oh, okay, we've made this social contract right. that on this day, we all have to do X, Y, and Z. And I, I don't know, man, I resist that. You should, you know, I, I had forgotten that my wife and I long ago before we were husband and wife or wife and husband is more Ooh, apt. There's a virtue signal. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, before we were wife and husband, we had decided that we would ignore Valentine's Day. Uh -huh. um, and then I'd forgotten that. And so I bought her a bunch of stuff for Valentine's Day this year. And then she didn't have anything for me. And she's like, we don't do Valentine's Day. Right. I'm like, I knew, the rule. I knew that. <laughs> Your chivalry. I got went, in trouble for not knowing ears. our rules on Valentine's <laughs> There you go. It's confusing this culture that we live in. It is. As a man trying to make the right decisions and the right moves. Um, what else is going on? Um, I've been swimming more, which is good. I got like in three times the week before last. And again, this week I've been swimming more, or I guess last week. Um, and it's been great. You know, the, the water's warming up a little bit. Um, got a big swim run challenge coming up in June. Uh, mm -hmm. Team Envol, Nicholas Ramirez, you know, the guy who right. advises me on all things swim run. He got inspired by the four by four forty eight. Yeah. And saw this like cool that he saw that as this accessible challenge for people who are interested in ultra. 
mm-hmm. to push themselves. This is an accessible challenge for people who are interested in swim run. It's much less demanding than four by four forty eight. It's over the course of June. He's got teams in different locations, and you can anyone can sign up, and he can assign you a team. You don't have to know anybody on your team, and you don't have to your even. Your team be, can be virtual. The team is virtual, mm-hmm. and basically, there's kids teams if you're ten and over, and of course, mostly it's going to be adults, and. All you have to do is a minimum of 15 minute swim run activity with at least two swims and two runs. So there's two transitions, mm-hmm. right? 15 minute activity could be enough. His wife is who, you know, they have two young kids. His wife's just gonna do a three kilometer swim run every day with a group of uh, people cool. in, in Stockholm. So it doesn't have to be this huge thing. And you get 10 points per activity plus one point per kilometer or 1.25 point per kilometer if it's over 10K, if one, if one session's over 10K. Right. And at the end of the, uh, of the month, they're gonna tally it all up and they're gonna decide who wins. That's cool. Where do you find out more about that if people wanna sign up? Uh, it's Team team Envol, which is on Instagram and they've got a website. E-N-V-O-L. Yes. Yeah. And um, two euro of your, your signing up costs a little money and two euro of that's going to Sea Shepherd, inspired by our discussion. That's dope. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Very it's cool. a positive thing and you know, part of the, the reason they're doing that is that a lot of swim run races are still being uh, up called, in the air. yeah, they're yeah. up in the air or not happening mm-hmm. because of COVID. And so it's to kickstart people's training, but also um, during the month, there's gonna be special days where he, where he spotlights swim run organizers where they have a specific challenge. So like swim run Belgium might have a specific challenge for people that yeah. you could take up or not, it's up yeah. to you. And there might be prizes associated with that. What if you live somewhere where all the pools are closed and you're landlocked? So that's a good question. So when all the pools are closed and you're landlocked? Yeah. That's a very interesting. <laughs> you could try I, to- I'm positing that as a, theori- well, a theoretical- Well, the best thing I can think experiment. of- a thought experiment. So the world champion, Desiree, I have to look her up now because I'm uh, silly like that, but she's one of the world champions uh, on the women's side. And she also does uh, sometimes races with men. And so she does the mixed team stuff. She's gonna be leading a group of mercenaries. They're the kind of the loner swim run people. Mm -hmm. So there's a guy that is being coached by Nicholas in Iran. Mm. And he's the only swim runner in Iran that that Nicholas knows of. That's pretty cool. And so that guy's gonna be on Desiree's team. There's gonna be, so people who are far out that aren't connected to any swim run community, because even though in, in LA, there's not that many people involved, but there, there are people around. Um, but in, uh, yeah, so he, he's got that group is gonna be, Desiree's team is gonna be the, the mercenary group. I so. feel like there's a New York Times assignment where you could go to Iran and do a story on the lone swim run guy. If only I could country. just, uh, if I could just pitch you for my New York Times stories, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd have more of them. Nobody's interested in that. Um, no, I think the Iran story would be good. You know, for someone for like that to be like a news story, he'd have to do well in a race, I think, mm-hmm. or like, but but there is, you know, that's what Nico really wants is Does me to do- Does he train more. in the pool at the palace that Bonnie talks about in her book? Well, that that's an amazing, like that's Iraq. Yeah, oh but, yeah. Yeah, duh. but but that's- I just, a, I just played my, you know, dumb American card. No, no, no. But I just think it's interesting, like Iran is a lot harder to get to than Iraq for yeah. Americans. So yeah. it would be, but I bet I could do it. It's just a matter of getting permission, especially if you're doing something on culture like that, swim run or right. sports. Um, you know, that, that's, uh, so that's cool. I would love to do a story on, on you know, I, there, was a, there was an open water swimmer 
who was trying to stave off like a civil war out, out, or like a, a um, civil conflict in, in Tunisia. Mm. And he wanted to swim from one part of the country to the other and to do like the kind of swim uh, diplomacy. Right. And uh, so he did that this year. That's pretty cool. That's a cool story too. Yeah. yeah. What else? What else? Oh, May 5th, there's a virtual run, Running for Justice. It's National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Uh, I don't know how many people are aware, but there has been this epidemic of murdered and missing Indigenous women in cities around the country, but also on um, in Native American nations on the reservations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something well known. It's been pub- publicized. There's been a, kind of a, even a movie about it. Um, this is a problem that's been ongoing for years and years. Um, and it's women who are most who have kind of risen up to try to get justice for these women, or at least investigate the crimes. And Jordan Daniel, who is an indigenous woman, local, lives here in LA, um, was a collegiate level runner. We talked about her once before. Mm-hmm. Um, in and she was doing like I think ten thousand, five thousand, ten thousand k races on track. Yeah. Um, and she ended up becoming a marathoner um, after college, kind of dealing with an eating disorder during her college career and afterwards kind of going through that recovery and embracing longer distances as a way to pay tribute to the women and girls who've been who've gone missing and oh, for a long cool. and she ran the Boston Marathon in uh in war paint symbolizing this cause oh, wow. um and now she is leading this virtual run uh, on May 5th so we'll we'll link up the show notes you can everyone can sign up there's a little bit of a fee not too much and it's about kind of raising awareness. So you put it on your social media and get more people aware of, of this epidemic. Yeah, that's cool. I like that, man. Yeah, right. and she's a, she's phenomenal as a person and as an athlete, so. Maybe we should get her on the podcast. We should get her on yeah. the podcast. Cool, man. Yeah. Well. How are you, Rich? What's going on? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. I feel I feel pretty refreshed after a very hectic five days in Minneapolis, which yeah. we're gonna talk about in a couple minutes. Got a good ride in yesterday, like a 60 mile ride. Um, so I'm feeling progressively a little bit more fit than I was maybe a month ago. So that feels good, um, but a little bit off my routine due to some travel. But mm-hmm. I did have one kind of uh, quick story. That's sort of a win of the week that I wanted to share up top here. Um, my boys, Tyler and Trapper, my stepsons and my nephew, Hari, just rap production on their first album or EP, it's five songs. Fantastic. Um, in a proper studio. And just for context, like the boys have been playing music together, these three guys who created the theme song for this podcast yeah. on the first day of the first episode, it still remains um, since they were like six years old. I mean, <laughs> Julie put a guitar in Tyler's hands when you know he could barely talk. And right. It was all she wrote. Like that was, it was clear, like this was gonna be his thing. Same thing, Trapper with Trapper with drums. And uh, we've been sort of waiting and waiting for them to finally lay down some tracks in proper fashion. Tyler along the way, his voice has developed. It's so beautiful. And he's become quite an extraordinary songwriter. Hmm. And they've been rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing for months, actually throughout the whole last year of the pandemic. And Hari originally is a childhood friend. Chi- of- yeah, Julie's brother's child. Okay. Um, Cousin. They've been, they've been rehearsing uh, for, for like a year. 
And the original intent was that they were gonna have their friend Chris from this band Grizzly Bear produce, but oh. Chris is in Spain. I mean, Grizzly Bear is like their huge. favorite band. This yeah. is like a huge opportunity yeah. for them. Chris is in Spain, however, and it was just becoming obvious that it was gonna be too tricky to do that in any meaningful way. But they linked up with this other uh, young producer here in Hollywood and they just spent all of last week at this studio called 64 Sound. Mm. Julie and I went and visited on the final evening of recording. And it's this totally dope, like old school recording studio in Highland Park that's got this incredible vibe. It's owned by Pierre de Reeder, who's the dude from Rilo Kiley. Mm. And over the course of the history of this studio, um, so many awesome bands have have recorded there from X, Sleater Kinney, Amanda Palmer, Ben Harper, Death Cab for Cutie, mm. Sia, Maroon 5. So there's this beautiful history. Mm -hmm. um, there's a cool studio tour video of 64 Sound. I'll link that up in the description and the show notes so you can kind of see what it looks like. Amazing. Um, and they just had this extraordinary experience. They got to use an instrument that was used by Elliot Smith, who they like revere. Um, and they had some of their friends come in and accompany them for some of the sessions, including uh, this guy, Harrison Whitford, who's an extraordinary uh, guitar player and is Phoebe Bridger's guitarist. Oh like, my God. So Tyler and Trapper kind of came up in the Phoebe Bridger's extended universe. Mm -hmm. Like they're, you know, they don't know her personally, but they know a lot of the musicians that are part of her kind of ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really cool uh, getting to hang out with, with Harrison. Um, so they laid down five songs and it was just, you know, as a parent, such a proud moment to yeah. see the, not really the culmination, really the beginning of so many years of, of time that these kids, passion and time that these kids have put into to their music now, you know, turning into something that they can share with the rest of the world. And I had this moment the night before they were going into their first studio session, they were doing final rehearsals at the house. So the whole kitchen area, you know, kitchen living area in our house was just <laughs> musical instruments everywhere. Yeah. And they were playing some of the songs and I was sitting with Julie listening and she just started tearing up. She was mm. like, you know, cause, cause we see them as the, you know, six and seven year old, eight year old, 10 year olds that every time we would have a dinner party, they would play, you know, yeah. they play a couple songs by Nirvana or right. Rage Against the Machine right, or, right, you know. Right. So uh, now they're men, you know, right. they're young men at the, you know, kind of coming into their creative prime. And it Amazing. was just really cool to see. Oh. So anyway, as a, as a parent, that's, that's a win, you know, to yeah. see that happening, especially as somebody who spends a lot of time talking about the importance of, of pursuing, you know, what's meaningful to you. And yeah. these guys have, you know, had extreme fidelity to this idea of becoming professional uh, musicians. And now it's sort of, they're coming out of the starting gate with that, which is great. Props to the boys. Do they have a name for the album yet? Uh, no, and they don't even have a band name yet. Oh, good, I love that. <laughs> yeah, so they're still working on that. Tyler Tyler wrote all the songs um, and he's lead vocals and lead guitar and they played all the instruments with the exception of some of the, the people that came in to you know, lay down accompanying tracks. Um, but Tyler doesn't want it to be Tyler Pyatt. He wants to have a, band, a proper band name, but right. they just haven't landed on it yet. He said he has, five contending ideas, but he wasn't willing to share any of them. Yet. Pyatt's a good band name. <laughs> yeah. 
you can tell him that. I'm not telling him anything. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd say the working title is Trace P Primos. Is that what it is? <laughs> Three cousins. Right, I'll let him know. <laughs> Trace I'm sure Primos. He'll be happy to receive that. <laughs> um, we got a lot to talk about today, uh, but um, before we get into the big story, which is going to be all about my experience in Minneapolis, mm. um, why don't we drop in and do a segment we're calling the Iron Cowboy Ticker. Iron Cowboy Ticker. That's right. Which is also kind of a win of the week. Today it's the win of the week section too, We right? have lots of wins of the week. We do? Yeah, there's more. Okay. Keep going. Um, the Iron Cowboy Ticker, he passed 50 Ironmans or quote unquote Ironman distance triathlons. Uh, yeah, you can't call it an Ironman. Yeah, I'm Iron sorry. Iron distance triathlons. 50, he passed the 50 mark, which was his own world record, Guinness world record, correct? I don't know exactly uh, how Guinness defines all of this stuff. I do know that he announced that it was a world record once he completed his 51st. Yep. When and he, he had did a big, the original 50, obviously that was in, those were all in different states and he was traveling. So now it's all like very home-based. But from what I understand or gather, yeah, nobody has done more than 50 in a row. Right, so his is 51. Right. So he had a big, I think it was it was his most Forrest Gump setting yet where a lot of people turned out to be part of the record and they ran right. some of the marathon with him. And then mm -hmm. and then he gave a nice speech. I, I saw He gives that a little stuff. speech every evening when he concludes and he's amazingly kind of together and eloquent, yeah. dropping a few words of wisdom on whoever's remaining at you know the late hour when they complete the marathon. Did he just get more weather? Did I see on today's Instagram or was that, so old, is that an old, like, is that an old photo? If you uh, photo? just started this like six weeks later, it would be a much more pleasant <laughs> experience. Like they just cannot escape. There were, we're now, you know, in, essentially in May right. and they're still dealing with snow and sleet and all this terrible stuff. They could but through early June. More power to them. Yeah. I guess, you know, that's why it's called an adventure or a challenge, right? So he's day 57? Today he's on day 57. He does appear to be having some significant hip issues. There was a bit of a limp that I noticed in him the other day. I saw him like on the bike using like a kind of um, ball roller thing on his hip while he was riding. Okay. So I know that's been bugging him, but to date, every time he's had some kind of setback from his swollen ankles to whatever he's dealing he with. He had that shin problem, right? Yeah, he just yeah. kind of powers through it and seems to get somewhat past it, mm. um, which again, I think is testament to the power of the body to adapt to extreme circumstances. Uh, and again, you know, I, I said it before, I'll say it again. This guy is so mentally strong, perhaps one of the most mentally strong people you're ever gonna encounter. My fear is that his mental strength exceeds his physical strength, um, but to date he's still cranking. And it does feel like there's been a little bit of a breakthrough, like his mood seems to be really good. Mm -hmm. He's smiling a lot and, you know, seems to be really engaged with the people that show up and track miles with him. And, and he shaved his beard. He shaved his beard after 50. I think that yeah. was the playoff beard. One of the wingmen did too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's like, whoa, what happened to the Iron Cat? Yeah. He looks like a totally different person. Yeah, he looks polished now. Yeah. He's a polished cowboy. But, um, sending him love and wind in his sails. It's like he was the uh, bounty hunter on the plains and then he got recruited to the Texas Rangers and they said, you could keep the hat, but you got to shave. <laughs> <I know. laughs> He's switching it up, man. Um, no, but I think he had like a, a real problem with his ankle or shin or something. And he had to, he found a brace and he was walking right. and using um, poles. And then gradually he was able to like, if you looked at his marathon times from 40, from like, 
maybe marathon 30 to, to 45, 450, every day it was getting a little bit quicker, a little bit quicker, mm-hmm. a little more running, a little bit less walking. And then the last couple of days, I think it, he had- the hip. Yeah. Now so it's the hip. It's a little bit lower. So it slowed him down yeah, again. Yeah, but not But much. he's gotten over and through these other things. Amazing. And he's on the backside of this. So much work remains to be done, but- It's amazing. It's gotta be an amazing feeling to know that he's more than halfway there. I'm in awe of the guy. It's pretty crazy, it right? It is. So everybody send him your love at Iron Cowboy James on Instagram where he and his family and all his people that are supporting him have done an amazing job at storytelling in real time. No doubt. This event as it unfolds. I'm it's sure. always like the first Instagram story that I watch every day every to get day. caught up. I mean, yeah. it's like a million little clips, you know, it's a lot, but yeah. uh, you can just, you know, check in. And there is something, we said this before, it's something, there's something comforting I'm comforted by every day waking up, I look at it and he's like climbing out of the pool. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, there he is. He's still doing it, man. <laughs> yeah. It's like clockwork. I know. Well, you know, you were talking about long-term distance or long-term effects of these kinds of ultra outputs. Um, I was reading a story written by an editor of mine at the New York Times, Randy Archibald, um, about the anvil. You're, you're familiar with the anvil race in, no. in Virginia. He wrote this years ago. It was like 2016, I think. It's a great. It's a great piece. I mean, it's hilarious and fun, and it's about five. Uh, it's a quintuple Ironman, but mm-hmm. they also got cease and desist letters. They couldn't use Ironman, but it's, a, it's the mm-hmm. same distance. And you could either do it all, the whole swim, all at once, the whole, then do the whole running, the whole yeah. bike, and then do the whole run with mm-hmm. sleep deprivation, or you could do each one, one after like day by day, and then there's a cutoff time. And so those, you had you got to choose. Right. Um, and so he was there in Virginia and it was all in this, it's similar to the way um, uh, James is doing it because it's it's all in a-, in a Contained space. Contained space. There's a, there's a thing called the DECA that's similar to that, where okay. they, there's a loop, it's in England and they just go around in circles. That's like 10 forever. of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, in that story though, he referenced some study that like some doctors are out or scientists are out there thinking that there is long-term health, like heart health implications with ultra, like there's scar tissue or something around the heart. Have you heard that before? Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, there's there's truth to that. It probably breaks down on an individual basis, like who becomes susceptible to that kind of thing, but certainly that's a risk. Uh, it's a risk that that James has willingly, you know, invited into his life, and we need pioneers like this to yeah. show us show us what's possible. You know, when I did the Epic Five, it was like, oh my God, you did five, and now it's like this guy's going to do a hundred. <laughs> you know, it's it's <laughs> it's like once it's you know it's it it's the same thing as you know Bannister breaking the four minute mark and the mile. Like once a, once a barrier is broken, then the floodgates open and everybody's perception of possibility gets elevated. Yeah. And that's kind of the story of the human race. Yeah, so. I'm with you. I, I love seeing him out there doing it. Um, I just had never heard that about the heart stuff before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's lots of studies on that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, all right, well, we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, we're gonna talk about Minneapolis and other sundry topics. Dateline Minneapolis. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really wanna do it? 
You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense. And you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called Brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment so that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. 
formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. All right, we're back. Let's talk about Minneapolis. Let's talk about it. So the week of April 13, I spent along with Blake and Jason in Minneapolis. Um, The idea being to garner a tactile kind of firsthand boots on the ground experience of what is actually transpiring there. Um, I said this in the introduction to the Jeremiah Ellison episode that went up earlier this week uh, that it's easy to think you have a sense of what's going on based upon the news that you consume or the newspapers that you're reading or the cable you know, news channel that you're watching. Mm-hmm. And it's something very different to actually be there and sort of touch it, feel it, um, to be present and immersed in the events that are transpiring. And I suspect you as an investigative journalist, Uh, have had this experience time and time again. I'm not an investigative journalist. It was something interesting and new uh, to take the podcast on the road. I mean, Mm -hmm. certainly when I travel and go out of town, I've traditionally brought a case and do podcasts on the road, but this was different. It was more event inspired as opposed to just, oh, I'm gonna be in this city giving a talk. I might as well bag some podcasts along the way. Right, right, right. This was part and parcel to an event that has captivated the whole world in a way because Mm -hmm. of uh, the social justice implications and and because we were all captive audience to, you know, George Floyd's death and murder. So it's, uh, it's, Crazy, and I mean, my experience has been mostly with underreported stories, and but it's the same in the sense that you drop into a place where you haven't been, yeah. and don't necessarily know the lay of the land, and you have an objective and a limited amount of time with which to get everything done, and you so there's a there is an, an element of adrenaline that's kind of always thrumming yeah. through you. You yeah, never 100%. Fe- you feel like you can never relax until you until you get mm. stuff in the can. And this was that times a thousand mm. because you flip on the TV yep. and it's just Minneapolis twenty four hours a day yep. on cable news, and you're there. You right, know, you and feel it's compa- all happening around you, and you wonder what everyone else is recording. Like, how am I? But the beautiful thing about about you doing it is that. Uh, uh, a photographer named Tom Stoddard, who I worked with earlier in my career, he's a legend, uh, English photographer. He's been around for mm-hmm. years and years, and he was in, you know, uh, in um, Bosnian War and other places. He's been a war photographer. He's been the guy that is in, you know, Tony Blair's limo. I mean, he's he's done it all in photography from the news perspective. And he, when I was working in displaced people's camps in in Myanmar with him for a feature for men's health, he said, you know, a lot of, some other people have done this story, but you haven't done the story. And so it's still important, you do it for the first time, it's still important. And in this sense, it's even more so because first of all, you weren't just doing the quippy kind of public radio, you know, story. 
or even a 30 minute narrative, you are doing deep in-depth interviews with people who normally are just on the TV for about five minutes. Mm -hmm. And so you bringing your perspective and your skill as an interviewer, which I think, and I've, I've I just wrote about this, uh, is prof I think, no, I don't think there's a parallel for you as an interviewer out there in broadcasting. And- That's uh, a heavy statement. I, I, I I've always believed that, I've told you that before. And, and so you come into this area with all this energy, but for you, bringing your perspective, it's always gonna stay relevant. So it's, it's a really interesting challenge for you. I mean, what, what, what drew you to doing, like to, to like mobilize the podcast in this direction? Cause it's new, new ground for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it definitely was uh, an opportunity to get out of my comfort zone and play with the format and try something new. But I felt called to do it. It felt important. It felt like the right thing to do. And I feel really good about the, not just the content that we were able to gather over the course of the week, but the decision to do it in the first place, mm. you know? And I think it's a, a direction that felt right for me. Mm. How the audience processes it is none of my business, that's up to them. But the rule is for this show has always been for me to follow my curiosity and to try to have meaningful conversations that that matter. And mm -hmm. this squarely falls into that category, but it all came together in a very interesting way. So I should probably recount that. Um, what happened was uh, my friend, Brogan Graham, who longtime listeners will remember was on the podcast many years ago. I think it was four years ago, mm -hmm. back at 277, something like that, episode 277. Brogan is one of the co-founders of the November Project, which is a global free fitness movement that's now in countries all over the world. He had been living in San Diego. He relocated to Minneapolis a couple of years ago. And we've stayed in touch and been friends, kind of internet friends. Uh, and he reached out several weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago and was like, listen, you know, obviously, you know, there's a lot going on in this city right now. I think it would be, really interesting for you to come here and get some interviews and I could help corral some interesting folks. I know a lot of people in the city, I'm pretty plugged in. Um, what do you think about that? And I immediately thought that that was a great idea mm. and time you know, is ticking pretty quickly on how this story with the Chauvin trial was evolving. So it was kind of a moment of clearing the calendar and just jumping on it and, yeah. and getting out there. Um, and and doing also in terms of getting out of my comfort zone when I've done podcasts on the road in the past, it's just me, right? right? But this time it's like, let's bring Blake, let's bring Jason, let's do, you know, full production, you know, quality video and audio. We'll get a hotel room with a big room in it and we can set up a set and we'll conduct as many interviews as we can. But as we approached the the day to depart to Minneapolis, I was struggling to get, you know, we did some research, like who would be the people that we would wanna talk to, right? right? Let's reach out to them. And we were getting no responses. Mm. And part of that is because I'm sure, because everything in that city was um, obviously very tense, but also kind of evolving moment to moment. Right. And, there was a sense that nobody could really commit to anything because who knows what's gonna happen the next day. And the people that I was reaching out to are also in high demand with the media and the whole media universe is now camped out in Minneapolis right. trying to get people you know, to interview. So on some level I was competing with the networks for time and attention. And if you're somebody, if you're a civic leader in Minneapolis, you have to gauge 
how you wanna invest your time. Should yeah. I go on Good Morning America or should I do the Ridge World podcast, right? So we get on the plane and it was very unclear whether we were gonna be able to interview anybody. But right. I know, and I know you know, cause we talked about this, that when your heart is pure, when your heart is true, <laughs> I don't think the universe will conspire to support you. <laughs> I don't think that's at no, all but right. It's, I know, I joke. It's more like you have to show up. Yeah, right? if you, you go you to the show story. Up and you're in 100% for the adventure and whatever is going to you know, unfold, um, then magical things can happen. But if yeah. you're like, well, I don't have it all scheduled, so I'm not gonna go, you're depriving yourself right. of that miracle. 100%, right? 100%. And, and I've done this many times in the past. So I knew to kind of trust that it would be okay. And it ended up being more than okay. We got incredible interviews yeah. with a variety of super interesting people. Um, and uh, you know, it once again, like affirmed that, that, that idea that like, sometimes you just have to show up. Man, yeah. You know? Can I set the context a little bit here? Cause one of the people you, you um, interviewed, the first episode just came out today. We're recording it on, on this on a Monday. And last night, uh, the, the Jeremiah Ellison episode just right. dropped. Um, but just, just to quickly set the stage, you get out there, um, a week before the jury delivers their verdict. And you're there like mm -hmm. right up until the, like a couple of days before the verdict comes in, right? Yeah. Or so, before the before the closing arguments. Right, anyway. right, right, right. So just to backtrack a moment, yeah. um, Brogan deserves a ton of credit for really um, being an incredible host yeah. and helping to open up a bunch of doors. Um, I'm wearing this T-shirt. It says it says Zoom call summer camp. Brogan sent this to me like almost a year ago. I love it, so I wanted to wear it today to, in honor of Brogan. Well, Brogan, also, Brogan also, was kind of like your fixer, right? Like we kind of, yeah, yeah he's kind yeah. of a fixer. He also uh, gifted me with that moose that you see in the center of the table there. Amazing. And he also Can we created this the... this podcast, this ritual <laughs> podcast bingo card, <laughs> which I'm going to get framed here for the studio that has like. You know, basically uh, all the words that tend to recur on the podcast: Give us a few. refuel, gut health, John Joseph, Goggins, <laughs> precipice. He missed a few, like unpack, um, new book, baked in, <laughs> paradigm busting, vegan, swim run is on there, and then yes. it's got like you can cut out your little, you know, bingo. I love it. Bingo chip and the whole thing. So we gotta play bingo. Anyway, Brogan is one in a million. He's one in a billion. Like he's the kind of guy who like goes out of his way to do cool, creative things like that. That's so fun. shout out to Brogan. Um, shout he out very Brogan. much wants your job. So careful. My job? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we I think I am gonna have him come in and he's gonna be in the area at some point in the not too distant future. I'm gonna have him sit in and, and, and read some ads with me. Perfect. Yeah. So you have him sit, have him sit in with us, and yeah, he'll, it'll he'll, be good. I'll just, uh, um, I'll just get pushed out of the way. No, you're not getting pushed out. Your job is secure, Adam. Like, <laughs> is that Brogan yeah. the moose or the caribou? Uh, the moose. No, that's not him, personally. Oh, okay. But to answer your question, yeah. So, so the Jeremiah Ellison episode just went up. We were present through the culmination of the defense presenting their case yeah. in the Chauvin trial. Uh, so. Um, we left Saturday morning. So Friday, the last day, the defense had rested and it was then headed to, um, then Monday was was closing arguments and then to the jury. And we right. all know what happened with that. Right. Um, convicted on all three counts. Well, that we second, should, second yeah, degree I mean, murder, that's third degree major. murder and, and manslaughter. But there was this very palpable sense that 
the city was on edge and had the verdict gone a different way, I, I'm pretty confident that the city would have exploded. Well, plus like the, the day before you leave or the night, like Dante Wright is killed. Right, so that's on top of the whole thing. Right. So just to set the stage a little bit, we arrive Tuesday night, I think. Um, we get there at like, I don't know, 8, 8.30 or something like that. And we're staying in a hotel right in downtown. Um, we're driving through downtown to get to the hotel. It's completely boarded up. There's nothing open. There's no people anywhere. Mm. It was very eerie in that regard. Um, none of us had eaten dinner yet. And <laughs> there was a restaurant in the hotel. The only vegan option was spaghetti. Um, and for $22, you could get uh, an, an order of spaghetti that was like the size of your fist. I heard two of those for $44 and felt like I'd only eaten an appetizer and I was starting to lose my mind. I'm like, we gotta order more food. But there were no delivery drivers and very few restaurants open. There was also the, the, the curfew, right? Right. So the curfew is at 10 p.m. Restaurants were, were, weren't taking orders after nine, but there was no drivers hmm. to deliver the food. Hmm. So we would go on DoorDash, which is the main food delivery service in that area. And it would allow you to like place your order and it would look all good and it would charge your credit card. And then you'd get a pop-up saying like, we, we just canceled your order, there's no drivers. But they made sure to charge your credit card first. So just I did that case. three times and racked up like, you know, $300 in food, food delivery. <laughs> they never showed that up. never showed up. Um, finally, Jason, uh, through his keen um, telephone and interpersonal skills, cajoled uh, a Chinese restaurant into delivering us a bunch of food. So we, it ended up being fine. But for a moment there, I was like, we're not gonna be able to eat. So that was the first night. Then um, after that, you know, we started to get to work and trying to pin down some people to interview. And mm. a bunch of the people finally did get back to us and we were able to lock down a bunch of interviews. Mm. We, uh, we ended up touring George Floyd Square, which was, an extraordinary um, experience. And I said this in the podcast with Jeremiah, but in many ways defied my expectations of what it would be in so many ways. Yeah. And in that is a powerful lesson or reminder that when you think you understand something, perhaps you don't understand it as well as you think you do. Because I'd seen George Floyd Square as all of us have, on television a thousand times. I formed in my mind what it would be like, what it looked like, what the environment surrounding it would, would be like. And it was really none of those things. Um, we shot a bunch of video. We we're able to um, work with a couple local guys, Jordan and Benny, who um, did some portraits and, and shot some video for us. So we're gonna try to put together a video out of that experience. Um, and it was really powerful and meaningful and also very meta given that the eyes of the world were kind of upon right. this city while we were there, including the fact that on f all day Friday, Dante Wright's entire family was in the lobby of the hotel. Mm. So you see them on CNN, interviews. you ride the elevator down and like there they, there they all are mm. with, um, with their lawyer. And so, you know, it just, it just felt meaningful to be there and I, felt a responsibility and a certain level of pressure to, um, I don't wanna say get it right. Brogan is always like, you're not gonna get it right. Release yourself from the pressure of trying to get it right, but at least be able to um, 
do service to these people who were donating their time to mm-hmm. share their story. So it was very intense. Like I was prepping most of the time with the exception of kind of going out um, to George Floyd Square and it was just bang, 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 interview, interview, interview. So- <laughs> what, what, was, what, what hits you at George Floyd Square? I mean, I know you've talked about it a little bit uh, in, on, on social media already and yeah. then, and then um, in the podcast really eloquently, but it was kind of in brief because you're talking to Jeremiah about his work. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it for you? Because to me, when I look at the photos and look at the video, it almost is like it was a retrograde moment in America. Like it was a throwback moment, a, a lynching on television. And it almost looks that way. It almost looks like what America used to look like back when people couldn't eat at the lunch counters. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of got that throwback, like retro look to it. Well, it's place. in a neighborhood that, that you know, hasn't necessarily modernized to right. look like 2021. So you can easily see it uh, you know, as 1965 right, in yeah. many ways. Yeah, um, The neighborhood itself is fairly residential. Like I said, with Jeremiah, I expected it to be a much more urban neighborhood than it was. Um, the space itself is much larger than I expected. Um, on the day that we were there, I mean, obviously your emotional experience of visiting George Floyd Square is gonna be heavily dependent upon what's happening in the square on that day. And certainly there are moments where there's a lot of people there Sometimes it's celebratory and joyous. On the day that we were there, it was gray and kind of cold and rain, you know, drizzling. There weren't that many people there. It was the middle of the afternoon and it just felt somber. It was unbelievably quiet in the space. And, and it was, you know, I was struck by the idea that it's kind of like this living, breathing museum, which mm-hmm. is what I said the other day as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't expect to be as moved by it as I was, cause I'd seen it so many times, like, all right, we're gonna go, you know, do this thing. And then I was like very moved by what I saw. Um, and it's really only in part about George Floyd. It's really about all of the, like the legacy that led up to George Floyd with all of the people who have died painted on, um, on the street. There's a cemetery, sort of a mock cemetery that they set up with gravestones um, for all the people that have died, and every little piece in Minneapolis of or overall, four, I think it's for Minneapolis. For Minneapolis, yeah. um, every piece of graffiti art, every mural, every little you know artifact that's placed is not policed, but but kind of managed by a community of people that have a say in what's. Okay. You can't just go in there and paint a mural or paint on the street. It's not yeah. a you know. It's not a um, what do you call that? Like a uh, public art space. Yeah, it is a public art space, but there's a lot of um, intention that goes into what's going to happen there and what's not. Um, we had spent, and I again, you know, forgive me for repeating what I talked about with Jeremiah, but we had spent a good 45 minutes to an hour visiting. Then, as we're leaving, we encounter this group of people who are all members of something called the Agape Collective, I think it's called. And this is the story that I wanna tell. So maybe 10 of them, they're all wearing the same t-shirt. And one of the guys says, hey man, like, what are you you guys doing here? Mm. Not in a overly aggressive or, or threatening way, but more like curiosity with a little bit of an edge, like, hey, state your purpose. Right. You know, like, tell us what you're all about. Yes. Brogan's like, oh, I live here. These are my friends. They're from Los Angeles. This is Rich. He has a podcast. 
and we're just here visiting, trying to understand what's going, you know, get a, get a better sense of, of what this is all about. And the guy goes, oh, you have a podcast, what's your podcast? This is kind of a health and wellness bent. Um, but I talked to all kinds of interesting people and he's like, do you do social justice? And I said, yeah, a little bit. It's not all the time, but that's why I'm here. I'm, I'm here to have some conversations with people about what's happening here. Uh, and he goes, okay. And then, and then he looks at me and he goes, what's your podcast do? And I was like, what does my podcast do? Mm. I was like, what is my, po-? and I literally was a deer in headlights. I was like, what does your podcast do? Mm. And I did not have like an immediate answer for right. him. I was like, he put me on the spot with that one. Right, <laughs> right. Know? What does it do? And I kind of muttered through like, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. I just, right. you know, I try to empower people, whatever. Um, you said something, but inside yeah, you were like, that's not like, it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I really should have an answer to that question. Right. And whether he knew it or not, I mean, that was like the ultimate question. Like, that's a profound question. Like, what is your, po-? and then the rest of the week, Brogan was joking with me. He's like, hey, Rich. What does your podcast do? Right. What does your podcast do? That's like jewels from Pulp Fiction. You almost just started walking the earth. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> that was it. Exactly. That was I was it. like, <laughs> I give up, right? Rich walks the earth. I'm like, what earth. an amazing question. And, and so anyway, we said enough to at least, I don't know if we, we didn't win them over, but, but sort of made them feel comfortable enough that our intentions were pure. And one of the women um, then, gave us this incredible tour of mm. the space. She took, there's a greenhouse there where they're growing plants mm-hmm. um, and walked us through all the different kind of um, mini installations throughout the, the space. And it was, you know, it was kind of an amazing experience. It's kind of a reclaimed area that now belongs to the community, but in a very controlled, not controlled, but a very intentional kind of controlled way, right? Very much so. Yeah. You know, when you when you breach the border of it, there's a big sign saying now you're entering the free state of George Floyd. And there's also these placards up that kind of uh state the I don't know if I want to call them rules, but like things to things to bear in mind when you walk in here. Like mm. this is a place of grieving. This is, you know, this is this is not for your Instagram moment. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a place of, you know. Of of that is that is somber and you know they please, need that please though. please like act accordingly yeah. essentially right yeah and uh, you realize like how much thought and intention has gone into this and yet there is a you know a debate over when to open the businesses that are within the square uh, again something I talked about with Jeremiah yeah. there's business owners that would like to reopen their businesses but you know is that a good idea right now. Um, there's differing, conflicting opinions on that, and then the the gas station where they've removed the pumps, and now there's a fire pit, and this is where the community kind of leaders sit and talk about the space and the issues that had you know happened that day, and whatever else is is top of mind. And it was you know it was it was cool. It's almost like it will become a museum. You know, like it'll be like, interesting to yeah, see, yeah, yeah, in order know, what it get, looks like in a year yeah. and five years from yeah. now. I mean, the context of Minneapolis of all of this, and you know, that like George Floyd's death was, um, to put it in, in con- yeah, we've all we've all seen the video, and we've, you know, we know about Chauvin and his background, and it, it was murder, but you know, he was one of many people who have been abused or killed by the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, they've had 
long long time accusations of racism. Black residents are more likely to be pulled over, arrested, roughed up than white citizens. They account for 20% of the city's population, but made up more than 60% of the victims of city police shootings from 2009 to 2019, according to police data. Um, and Merrick Garland, the attorney general, has just announced a complete investigation into the Minneapolis police force mm -hmm. with the blessing of the chief, mm. who is mm -hmm. black, we should say. Yeah. And um, so all that is the context for you being there. You know, like that, that's the context for George Floyd Square kind of blooming and becoming this place. Yeah, the context yeah. is much broader yeah, than yeah. George Floyd. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, yeah. and, and that's something that, look, I realize like emotions run high around this, in, you know, in my opinion. Uh, Derek Chauvin snuffing the life out of this guy. It's like you know, on video. It's like this is not a this is not a a hard case. No, <laughs> you know, and it is interesting that there was such a such an exhale and a sigh of relief when the verdict was announced, um, because it seems like you know this should be a no brainer, and yet time and time again we've seen it go the other way. Yeah, um, it was interesting when I posted a little clip, little video clip. Uh, of me and the guys walking through George Floyd Square on Instagram last week. It was for the most part well-received, but also met with not a small amount of, of derision and what I would characterize as moral confusion, a few ad hominem attacks, a lot of whataboutism um, and this idea that, you know, to honor that space and to, um, you know, appreciate the movement is somehow to hoist George Floyd up as some kind of hero, mm. which really misses the point and the main issue of the whole thing. It was dispiriting on some regard to mm -hmm. see that. And I understand everybody's got, you know, their own take and opinion on that. And ultimately, you know, I do it again. I feel pretty good about being on the right side of history. And like I said, I'm proud of the work that, that we've done. And I think it is important. And I talked to Brogan about this the other day. There's this idea that yes, we, we all saw the verdict. We watched it live here in the studio mm. the other day. There is this sense that we can exhale a, a sense of relief. Um, and I think it's okay to be happy about it for a minute. Mm. Like there's this sense like, well, we can't be happy about this. There's so much work that has to be done. And that's certainly true. Yeah. Um, but I think we can, we can be grateful that it turned out in that way without it being some kind of referendum on the extent of the remaining work to be done. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think that what you were referencing with your Instagram post is like you you had said at the beginning of us talking about this, that like, we all think we know something before we, and then you get there and there's a whole nother depth mm -hmm. to it that we hadn't really anticipated. I think that when it comes to how polarized we are with media choices or media silos or politics or whatever, um, people are so sure of their opinion more so than ever, especially the less they know about it. You know, mm -hmm. the less you know, the more sure you are of your opinion. Um, and I think that that's where a lot of that comes from. And we're like somehow calcified with so little information into these little boxes and we do it to ourselves and we're the product. We've talked about it with technology. And I think you're dealing with a little bit of that. I think it's, that's why it's so cool that you are a, wanting to flex and kind of get, get that crust out of there because what we need is, is a certain level of unity to accomplish big things, to make the world better. 
Um, I mean, that's what you're, to me, yeah, that's mean, I, what you're, you're after. Yeah, flex might be the wrong word. Like I went there with a lot of humility and right. appreciation that even though I think I have a grip on these issues, uh, understanding that, you know, I was only touching the surface of what was really going on. And the spirit of the trip was to try to learn more so that I could understand more comprehensively um, the issues that are at play that I think, look, you know, Minneapolis is a test case. Yes, it's about the current and future state of Minneapolis, but you know, to again, use the word referendum, it's about the civil rights movement at large. It's about where we stand on race as a country and it bodes, it is a statement on where we're headed as a country. Mm -hmm. And that's why the world was watching this 24 yeah. hours a day. I think, you know, you talk about with Jeremiah in that episode about kind of the, the, the wins that the Minneapolis movement for Black Lives Matter has had in terms of policing. And I don't wanna step on that now. People should check out that episode because it's very interesting. But for me, from a, for looking at it, when I look at the effects of the Black Lives Matter mu movement this summer, now, now we see two things. And one is the Biden election victory. I think that's directly tied to that. I don't think you have the turnout you have for Biden without Black Lives Matter. I think that's a big win that is connected completely. I think it's that was the first. And I think the George Floyd, first of all, having a murder case at all, and then the verdict. Mm -hmm. I do think that they, um, you, you, you got to give credit to the BLM movement. So, you know, when you went for a movement that wasn't after any one specific, uh, you know, there was no civil rights law they were after. There was no permission to go to school type of thing that's, that the civil rights period had, which are very, you know, simple, you know, like really easy to understand things they're trying to accomplish. That makes it easier for spectators, I guess, or mm -hmm. other people in the, in the public who uh, are, are sympathetic and wanna know. This, the BLM movement didn't have that. So it was kind of like harder to understand for some people, mm -hmm. but now we have these two really concrete things in my opinion. Yeah, what do you, it's what do you harder. Think about that? It, well, it's harder to calculate progress yeah. without some kind of touchstone moment. Yeah. So, on some level, that's what this represented. Um, and progress is iterative. You know, despite how much kind of revolutionary energy you have around massive change, history dictates that these changes happen pretty slow. Yes. And as much as some people would like it to move much more quickly, we have to at least acknowledge that um, it is moving in the right direction. It is. A um, couple questions for you, because uh, you talk with um, Jeremiah about kind of the defund the police language. And I think that, you know, we should, you should lay out kind of like, I know Jeremiah does very well, but, um, you know, people are confused. I think that, that that anytime you question the police, it's been a third rail in this country for so long. It's like the military and the police. You can't criticize the police, you can't criticize the military. It's like immediately a political third rail. And that's mm. what this movement was doing, which is why people were like, some, some people back. who were not sympathetic yeah. were pushing back. But I think what is, you know, what the Columbus case showed, uh, I think, uh, the the soldier that was pulled over, the lieutenant that was pulled over in Virginia, I think it was, what that showed, maybe it was Maryland, um, is that too often, first of all, police, armed police don't have to show up for everything, mm -hmm. right? 
So when we talk about, when, when they talk about, the activists talk about defund the police, they are talking about moving money around and having, like you said, not a, not a monopoly for public safety. Well, it depends the on who you talk to. Like right. I said, defund the police means different things to different people. Right. You can make the argument as, as Jeremiah does that the provocative nature of that phrase was what was necessary to produce right. the conversations that lead to change. The counter to that is, is that it's so inflammatory to say that, that it's unproductive. Right. right. So I, I my my take on that would be like I think abolish the police is an unproductive phrase. Like mm -hmm. I think defund, I think you should we're all grown ups, we should be able to listen to that and and figure out what that means. That means, you know, for cuz for years police forces were were funneled cash to militarize more and more. And you'd see these like they have military Humvees with their police department. Yeah. It's, you yeah, know, like yeah. some of that stuff is unnecessary and certainly what's unnecessary is is to have like the the lieutenant who wanted to drive a mile to get into a well lit gas station is immediately has guns pointed at him and people shouting at him or you know George Floyd passing allegedly a, a fake bill um, there is no reason to get violent with someone like that sure the, 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 or with Dante, or Dante Wright. Wright in the middle of in the middle of the Chauvin trial are you gonna, you're going to shoot at Dante Wright driving away there's like, no, there's no just, reason it's just, to it's insanity you, you, right you so you can follow him home and block right, just, the driveway just show up at his house tomorrow right right if there's right, a warrant out for right, him but right. like your job is to de-escalate conflict but the problem is so much of the training that's bred into the police force is that things can go haywire at any minute. You've got to be ready at all times for something terrible to happen. And so you create a like trigger happy mindset because you're always thinking that lethal force is going to be directed at you. Right. And so that creates like an anxiety or a fear, I suppose. And I, I don't want to get too deep into this because I, I'm certainly no expert on police training or, no. you know, the the entire issue as a whole. But I think the relevant point that I would like to make is that when you hear defund the police and Jeremiah being somebody who's at the vanguard of that movement and is kind of for better or worse, been you know, a prominent voice in, in, with respect to that issue, when you actually sit down and talk to him, what he says makes a lot of sense, which is that, which is first to pose the question, should police have a monopoly on public safety um, which is a question I said to him, like I'd never really asked myself that question or thought yep. about it. Yep. But when you think about it, you know, a, a, a sort of armed response to every 911 call is certainly highly inappropriate. There are probably the majority of those calls that could be attended to without people with guns. Yes. We see this in other countries. Um, and and we do need better training around de-escalation. We see it um, here in this country. We so, see it in LA, like, yeah, yeah, but yeah. part of part of part of the you know the kind of response is we don't need to defund the police. We need to give them more money into training, right? right? Maybe, and 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 you know we could talk about that. I think the the larger point is we need to reallocate resources so they're going in the direction of the kind of reform that we would like to see, and right. that overall the police force should be a tool in a larger toolkit that includes other public safety measures that are more appropriate depending upon the circumstances. 100%. Because I think what we're, what's also, I don't hear people talking about is the status quo. It's not working for the police either in the sense that- It'd be terrible to be a cop right now. Why would you like yeah. the, and, and right now or anytime there's lethal force involved, like, like 
everyone suffers from these things. Mm -hmm. The repercussions, you know, one thing I was thinking about when I was listening to Jeremiah is like, look at this amazing family. Keith Ellison, his father is the attorney general from Minnesota, was a congressman for many terms, um, is, is so empowered. And is, this guy's an artist who, mm -hmm. you know, must have felt called to more service and decides and, and, and is really um, has a great idea of what it, what it means to be an activist and what it means to actually then synthesize those demands into governing. And he cares and about a, both. And, and he understands community building. And he understands community building. And he's he's like as good a spokesman as you could ever find for from an activist point of view. Mm -hmm. And now he's governing and understands that's a different level. And he's really on that. It's, you know, not to put him in in, in some politish bo politician box because he might be an artist in five years again. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but Barack Obama was a community organizer. So when you see that kind of progression, it's very exciting. Um, but, uh, so like at the same time, there's this beautiful, there's a beauty in like these powerful families or some, some sort of energy and, and it has nothing to do with people's economic background necessarily, or their, or their uh, ethnic background. It's just like some families have this like incredible energy running through it. And that is a, a an energy that I think there's, there's, it has to be treated with respect. And at the same time, if you're a police officer and you get into an altercation, one moment could could create a negative energy that runs through, like the George Floyd family now mm -hmm. has to deal with this vacancy, but the cops family has to deal with their, the fact that they, he murdered George mm -hmm. Floyd. And like that kind of, re, the repercussions of all that, it, that's what's so sad to me, the tragedy, yeah. the tragic repercussions when you see what, what an incredible like purpose-driven family looks like, that's what we all wanna be, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly uh, a call to service is like woven into the DNA of that family. I mean, yeah. Their mom was on the board of the uh, Department of Education, I believe. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, amazing. Yeah, amazing. So, anyway, all right. You guys saw the the um, verdict here together, and that was kind of like a a cap on the trip for you, wasn't it? Yeah, we were back here and working on the episode, and it came on and well, first of all, uh, Brogan FaceTimed me and he's like, they're gonna announce the verdict pretty soon. So that was how I clued into it. And uh, we just, yeah, we flipped on YouTube where it was you know, streaming live and just watched until they announced it. Amazing. Um, you think you'll, you'll do one of those trips again? I'd like to, I mean, not for the sake of doing it, but if it feels like the right thing to do. You know, it, it is interesting because the legacy of this show is essentially evergreen conversations. And this is something that is more news than that. Um, and we're, you know, we're releasing these now over a couple of weeks. Right. So there's a dated nature to it, I suppose, but the conversations are really about the ongoing conversation. It's not about like what's happening in the Derek Chauvin trial or right. what's happening with Dante Wright. It's about the larger issues at play that are not going away. You know, that conversation continues. Yeah. And, you know, as everybody is fond of saying, the work is just beginning and there's much to do. Very cool. It's almost like anytime there's a conflict, you just wish that the people that are called to deal with it show up with this idea that I want the best interest for everybody involved to be the outcome, including mm -hmm. myself. And so what is that? And that would be a nice intention 
Now I'm not a cop, but that would be a nice intent. When I show up to an, uh, to do a job, that's kind of where I try to come from. And listen, you know, I'm sure there's a huge number of police officers that have that state of mind. No doubt, and soldiers. Yeah, hundred mm-hmm. percent. It's just it's just not everybody, and there's and and um, clearly so. And it could there's good reasons why people don't show up that way because maybe you have to be on guard. Maybe there's something wrong with. But it seems like. It seems like if we if we follow like what you're saying, what Jeremiah was saying on in his podcast with you, if you kind of divide up the the tactics, this you need an armed response for, this you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you have a better chance of, of of getting there. Yeah. Well, we'll see what we'll see what unfolds. Cool. We're brought to you today by Recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. 
Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story. But basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. All right, let's move on to a little show and tell, shall we? Let's the do show it. and tell segment. Let's do it. I got lost to show and tell today. You, your first show and tell is 10,000, correct? First up on show and tell is the 10,000 distance short and kit. <laughs> 10,000, long time. Sponsor of the podcast, uh, shout out to 10,000. I love those guys. What's interesting about 10,000 is that this is a, it's a relatively new brand that, that really kind of found its mark in the gym functional fitness kind of CrossFit world. Um, and they've been a great sponsor for, I think over a year at this point for mm. quite some time. And I love their gear, I love training in it. Their stuff is really of the highest quality. And they reached out to me many months ago to share this plan that they had to get into the running space in a meaningful way because their gear wasn't really necessarily uh, tailored for run specific workouts. And they just asked, would you be interested in getting involved and helping? And because I love the brand and I really like the people, the guys behind it, um, I appreciate their incredible attention to detail and their fidelity to the highest quality training gear that I was like, yes, I will jump on this. What a cool opportunity. So over the last several months in kind of stealth mode, 
Myself, along with some other ambassadors that you might've heard of, like Ryan Hall, American record holder in the marathon, turned like beast mode, like powerlifting bodybuilder guy. <laughs> it's unbelievable, <laughs> this guy's transformation, but he's such a cool guy. Um, and obviously nobody knows more about running than Ryan Hall, uh, along with Robbie Ballinger, a mm. friend of the pod who ran across America and just set the FTK that we talked about in Central Park. Yep. Uh, Hakim Tafari, who's been on the pod, friend of the pod. We were all testing prototypes and, and giving 10,000 feedback. We would do these Zoom calls. I would do Zoom calls with 10,000. There'd be like six or eight people from their team on the call. They were so receptive to all the kind of um, ideas that I would have. And they just continued to iterate. They'd prototype after prototype after prototype, super receptive, very humble hmm. um, about what they knew and didn't know about running. And they finally nailed it. And they've created this short called the distance short. I apologize. These are actually dirty because I ran in the other day and I haven't mm. done laundry. So maybe they don't smell bad. But, um, they really crushed it. Like it's a fantastic short. It feels like it disappears when you're running. The liner does not chafe. That's my biggest beef with most running shorts, even really great running shorts. Like if I'm going out on a super long run, at some point I start to have to deal with like some chafing. I've never had any chafing with this. Um, you, don't, material, you don't vaso? I, sometimes like if I, you know, sometimes I will, but I was testing this without that because right. I wanted to see if there would be like a hotspot with it, but no hotspot and I really love it. Um, I'm excited to have played a small part in the creation of, of this product. How long would your um, test runs be? I mean, I, you know, I'm not training super hard. So I, you know, 10, 10, 13 miles, something right. like that. I wasn't going out doing like, you know, ultra runs or anything like that, but Robbie was right. and he wore their gear for his Central Park uh, FTK and didn't have any issues whatsoever. Um, so yeah, I'm really proud to have played a part in this. This is the tank top that they also created as part of the Let's see it. as part of the run kit. Look at that. Nice blue, super nice material. The, like everything that they do, like the stitching, everything is like, you know, so well thought out Fantastic. and refreshing. Um and uh I told the guys that 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 uh I wanted to share that. Uh, today and they said, well, let's do a giveaway. So they were kind enough to offer five full distance kits, which is the short, the tank top and a pair of socks um, to enter, to win one of these distance kits. All you have to do is subscribe to the YouTube channel, leave a comment below uh, indicating why you think you should be the recipient. And mm. we'll just pick five. We'll reach out to you, get your address. Uh, once we select you, we'll, we'll message you directly and, uh, and get you the gear. But if you would just like to bypass that and grab them, you're certainly welcome to do that. There's a link in the description below or in the show notes. And if you use the code RICHROLL, um, you get a 15% discount. Perfect. One thing I did wanna say, um, when I posted this on Instagram the other day, uh, there were some women who were like, what, no women's line? It, mm. is a, it is a men's apparel line. So that's, there's not much I can do about that. It just is what it is. Mm. But I am uh, actively working with 10,000 on some new stuff that I'm super excited about that I can't really talk about right now. So that's gonna be coming out later this year. So cool stuff in the pipeline. Very exciting. Second thing I wanna share in show and tell is uh, this smart goggle from 
this company called Finis, which is swimwear apparel company. Yes. And before I even do that, let me do a little backstory here because it's a good story. So uh, my friend, John Mix, who's the founder of Finis, that's become like a very prominent uh, competitive swimwear um, and training device company. He started this company. I don't know exactly when he started it. It was probably in the early to mid nineties. I met him through Pablo Morales, uh, the great Olympic champion, Pablo Morales. Yes. Who I swam with at Stanford. Then we went to, we did our final year at Cornell Law School together. We lived together in Palo Alto when we were studying for the, the bar exam. Um, and I and Pablo was like a, a the initial investor or one of the initial investors in Finis. They were kind of partners back in the early days. And when I met John, he was the first person uh, to show me the monofin. Hmm. This is in 94, 95, something like that. He had been, I guess the story goes that he had been traveling in Europe and he happened upon a fin swimming competition, which he'd never heard of or seen anything like right. before. He had been a swimmer himself. And he's like, I need to learn more about what this monofin thing is. And he got one and he brought one back or he brought a couple back and started playing around with them. And he was sharing them with Pablo and myself and a couple other swimmers. And we would go down to the pool at Stanford and play around with them. And they were super fun and an incredible training aid because when you're doing it properly, swimming, you know, undulating the dolphin kick underwater with a monofin, it works your your ab abdominals and your lower back like nothing else. Like so is incredible. it were they heavy or they're they're smaller they're than the free diving like, monofins? So right? they come in all different sizes, and in in competitive fin swimming, there are different fins for different events, and I'll get into that in a minute. Um, but there's a like the the sort of original models are hand built tapered fiberglass mm. with you know, a double foot, you know, yep. what do you call that? Like foot pocket. Foot pockets that are extremely tight. Like it's very difficult to get your feet in there. And once they're in there, you're like locked in and you become like one with the fin yeah. in a very, um, uh, you know, kind of mermaid way. Yes. Uh, and we were just having a blast playing around with this thing at the pool and getting a great workout along the way. And as a swimmer, um, you know, as I've said many times, like I was a bench warmer at Stanford, like I was not putting points on the board, but I had the but opportunity were, to train with all these Olympians. Swimmer. And I will say, if I was gonna toot my horn at all, the one thing that that I that I was, and I think I still am pretty good at is under underwater dolphin kick. Like certainly Pablo, Anthony Moss, Sean Murphy, Jay Mortensen, maybe a couple other guys on the team were better than me at that. But I was right up there with, with uh, not right up there, but I was like kind of on the, on the heels of those guys when it came to that. Was butterfly this was your, the age, your main stroke? Yeah, yeah, I was a butterfly swimmer. Um, and this was a period of time in the late 1980s where swimming was just starting to figure out, competitive swimmers were starting to figure out how powerful the underwater dolphin kick was off the walls and okay. how you could swim faster underwater with a proper dolphin than you could on the surface. Mm. Um, so, there were backstrokers starting with Dave Burkoff at Harvard who would essentially swim almost the entire 100 meter backstroke underwater because <laughs> yeah, yeah. they could go so much faster and American and world records were being broken using this technique until uh, 
FINA and USA Swimming said, hold on a second, like this is rewriting the entire thing. Like we're not so sure this is the best way to do this. So they ended up instituting a rule that said you could you could not swim underwater dolphin kick for more than 15 meters yeah. off each wall. Yeah. And that kind of changed the game. Yeah. But during this period of time where everybody was pushing the limits with the dolphin kick, we were experimenting with it on the team. And and I was always very strong in this regard. So the monofin was like, where has this been my whole life? Mm. Like, I love this. Like maybe I should get into this fin swimming thing. Yeah. And Pablo, myself, and a couple others along, you know, with John Mix's leadership started to um, learn more about this world of competitive swim, fin swimming, which for people that don't know, there is an entire sport and subculture that's quite robust in certain parts of Europe and particularly in Russia mm-hmm. and in parts of China, where when you're coming up as a, as a kid and you show prowess in the pool, they figure out right away very early whether you're gonna be a fin swimmer or a traditional competitive swimmer. And certain kids get channeled into this fin swimming world. And there's a whole universe of international fin swimming competition where they have these meets and you're in this monofin and you you basically um, dive in off a, a, a starting block, just like you would in traditional swimming. And you swim underwater as fast as you can yes. with this fin. Everywhere from everything it, from 50 meters. Yeah, well, snorkel, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? so with some of the events, like every event is different. Like it's divided up into all these fascinating subcategories. So um, if you're just swimming the 50 meters, you don't need anything because literally they cover the distance in like, I don't know, I should have looked up what the current world record is for 50 meters, but it's like, it's like, I don't know, 12 seconds or 13 mm-hmm. seconds or something like that. And when these swimmers dive in with the fin, this wave, it's like a tsunami, like a low, like like a two foot tsunami just moves down the 50 meter pool and then just drenches all the <laughs> officials at the other end of the pool. And it happens so quickly, it's fascinating to watch. There are other events where you use a snorkel. Mm. Um, so you have a, a, a center mounted snorkel, yep. you dive in and then you swim just below the surface of the water, but the snorkel is above so you can breathe the entire yep. time. And you're in a streamlined position like this with your hands out in front of you undulating. And then there are other um, events, longer events where I forget which one is apnea. Is that where you have the snorkel or is that where you have the tank? But no, you actually apnea have is, is breath hold. Bre- so that's the 50, like yep. when you just do the breath hold. Yep. There are other ones where you use a tank. You literally have an oxygen tank that is wired to your mouth. Really? A thin, long oxygen tank and you hold it out in front of you like this in the streamlined position. Yeah. I have my hands above my head for people that are listening. Yeah. And you'll swim 1500 meters underwater without ever breaking the surface, breathing by dint of this oxygen tank. You ready for the world record 50 meters? Oh, did you just look it up? What is it? 15 seconds. 15 seconds, all right. And 100 meters, 33.87. So it's it's crazy, right? <laughs> like when I discovered this, I was like, how did I never know about this? Right, right, right. Um, because it's never really made its way to America. Right. So John brings the monofin back. He introduces this device to a group of elite swimmers. In short shrift, it becomes a go-to training device for a lot of very elite competitive swimmers. Most prominently, uh, there's a swimmer called Misty Hyman, Mm -hmm. who, uh, and she ended up winning the 200 meter butterfly 
uh, gold medal in, Sid in Sydney. And she was a de devoted practitioner of using the monofin in training and had an un she had an unbelievable underwater dolphin kick, mm. the best in the world. Um, she's just one, she's probably the most prominent example. But that got John thinking about how he could put together a team in the United States to go to the world championships of fin swimming. I don't think I've ever told this story on the podcast, but um, in 19, I think it was 1996, the world championships in fin swimming was gonna be held in Hungary in this town outside of Budapest called Dunyajvaros. I'm sure I'm saying that no, wrong. No, that's a great pronunciation. Dunyajvaros. Dunyajvaros. I'm, sure, I'm sure I'm saying it incorrectly. <laughs> it sounds um, good. And he he uh, he puts together this team. There are probably like ten or twelve of us. The team included Jenny Thompson, who between 1992 and 2004 won more Olympic medals than any other female <laughs> swimmer in history. Pablo Morales, most winning swimmer in NC2A history, won the gold in the hunter fly in Athens. Your friend Misty Hyman, who I just mentioned, uh, Chris Morgan, my friend Chris Morgan, who went on to become a very prominent swim coach. He was the 2008 Olympic coach for Switzerland in Beijing. He then went on to be assistant coach at Harvard. He's doing other things in the swimming world now. And then me, right? Like I was sort of like piggybacked onto this crowd. <laughs> the, like, the would be lawyer was with, hanging it, around with Pablo. his good uh, dolphin John's kick. like, yeah, you can come, you know? <laughs> so in 96, we all go, I'm like with these incredible Olympians, we go to Hungary to compete in this meet, but we don't know what we're doing at all. Like we have no, like these swimmers are unbelievable, but they have no experience in fin swimming, which right. we soon learned is a very different discipline. Like we were training together and trying to figure it out, but it was like, you know, a hilarious bad news bears type situation, but with Olympians, with gold medal, world record setting Olympians. Did, did they like the fact that they were in beginner mode? Like, was no, it, cause it was fun. There was yeah. no pressure. Right, right, right. Like, and. The United States had never attended one of these meets. Right. So we show up uh, in Hungary, we go to this town, which is kind of a, 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 communist, a communist relic, like mm -hmm. a lot of these tall um, sort of housing, you know, facilities that you could tell are like from a bygone era. Yeah. Um, and a very industrial town. I think the steel mill was really the, the, the engine for the economy in this part of the world but they have this beautiful natatorium <laughs> and we, did, we swim in this meet. And we did, I was, I was like on the four by 200 relay. They do relays like they do in swimming and just watching it was fascinating. Mm. And like meeting all of these athletes from all over the world. Fun. I remember there was one guy, the guy who I think he won the 50 meter apnea was a dude from China who kind of was, he was a big dude, kind of bulky. He had a, he had like a belly. And he was smoking cigarettes outside the, the, <laughs> the auditorium, like in between sessions. Badass. But he would dive in and like break the world record in the 50 meters, like swimming in a way that none of us could. Um, and it was just really, it was just a wild, wild experience. They're like, um, sir, your meat's about to start. No, I'll be fine. Yeah. I'm, I'll be fine. But what's interesting, and the reason I bring it up is that the legacy of that experience is Finice kind of popularizing through John, popularizing the monofin as a training device. Mm. And most competitive swimmers use it as one of the tools in their toolkit. 
But at the same time, fin swimming has never you know, caught on no. in the United States. And you have some experience with this, right? Because there's a crossover between fin, the fin swimming world and the free diving world. Yes, so um, I mean, the monofin that was adopted by free divers to go uh, on constant weight to get the records. Originally, they were just using bifins and then someone mm. found the monofin and incorporated that and Alexei Molchanov, uh, was uh, you know early was groomed as a as a, a high end national team level swimmer from the time he's a little kid because his mother Natalia the greatest freediver ever mm. um, she uh, was a, a competitive swimmer for the first twenty four years of her life and anyway um, Alexei uh, was kind of put through like the the sports schools in Russia. And just like you said, he was divided, put into the fin swimming camp mm -hmm. because he probably because he was built with amazing, powerful legs, and he had a great dolphin kick. And they put him right in the fin swimming, and he did fin swimming till he was seventeen, and and immediately went to free diving from that. So and wow. it gave him this advantage. Now he's the deepest ever with a monofin. Right. Well, there's a reason. Yeah. 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 yeah it's super interesting. Yeah. I could tell you that when you're fit and you're you're using a monofin the feeling of moving through the water that fast underwater is exhilarating. It's crazy, like how fast you can go underwater with Amazing. it. And there are, like I said, there's different monofins for different events and purposes. So for the longer distances, you're gonna have a very large, broad, pliable monofin that has a lot of give in it. And for like the 50 meter apnea, it's gonna be a very stiff board. Hmm. And so I don't know what it's like now, but back then you could, get a sort of commercially manufactured fin that would just be a piece of fiberglass. But the real, there's real artistry in these people, much like surfboards, like creating the perfect fin for that individual and for a specific distance or mm -hmm, event mm -hmm. that tapers. And there's like, you know, all these like little certain peccadilloes that the different athletes would have with respect to their fins. And so we were trading fins and trading t-shirts with the Russians and the Chinese and, it was wild. I mean, and as you know, as a swimmer who never made it to the level where I was competing internationally, yeah. it was like this cool ex way of like tasting that um, in a very low stakes environment for us. Because we we didn't win any medals or any. Like, were, were you still in law school? This was yeah. I was still yeah. I was still or maybe no. I think it was it was. I think it was right after I graduated. Maybe it was 94, 90, I can't remember. No, it was, it was after law school, but okay. shortly thereafter. Fun. As and you get old, I can't remember the timeline exactly. Right, right, but right. Do you miss, uh, do you have, how, how come you have, you gotta try free diving with a monofin, man. You gotta get, get your monofin my, back. My, well, I listen, when I was in Malta, I did a whole day of free diving breath training with like that guy, I can't remember his name. Right. The guy lives there who's like a former world champion. Mm -hmm. And then we went out to to actually free dive and I could not get down below like 12 or 15 feet without my head feeling like it was you gonna explode. I couldn't, probably. I could not equalize. Yeah, so I, yeah. I'm i sure with discipline and training, I could get past that. Yeah. But on that day, which is the last time I tried it, I couldn't. So I, I don't feel like I, I could really get the full free diving experience because of my inability to equalize. Yeah, you just have to, you just have to work on it a little bit. Yeah. You can easily get past it. But I love the monofin. All of which brings us to the the show and tell, which is yes, that not a John, fan. who then you know I I've just recounted the early days of of Finice, which was a company that literally literally started with a monofin as its product, has now become this robust competitive swimming yep. um, apparel line, has come out with a smart goggle 
and John sent me one of the early, uh, one of the, you know, before it's commercially, it's not quite commercially available for, you can pre-order it, they're shipping in May. Um, but what's cool about it is it has a computer that you can see that, that fits in here. You kind of um, push it in here and it clicks in and it's got a little optical, um, I don't know what you would call that lens there. And in the corner of your left eye, it, it, it provides output and data on your swim workout. Essentially real-time data to better understand the patterns in your swim training. It calculates split and time and distance. You can see it very easily and read it uh, pretty easily. I was concerned because I, I wear glasses, I'm pretty blind right. without them, but I had no trouble reading it. And it's amazing how it kind of knows if you're doing a set of hundreds, it knows that if you sit on the wall in between each hundred repeat for more than like five seconds, it's like, oh, okay, this is a, he's taking a break. Like this is your split for the hundred. And um, you don't really need a pace clock because it'll then count down, okay, you know, how much rest you want in between each one of those. Okay. And then it all syncs up with this app called the CIYE CIYE app. Um, so your workouts upload there, it integrates with Strava if you'd mm. like that. And what's cool and different about this smart goggle, because there are other smart goggles out there, um, is that the, the actual technology, you can pull it out, because the goggle at some point is gonna wear out. Right. right? The lens are gonna get scratched, or right. you're gonna you know, break the mooring or whatever. Um, you just get another pair of goggles and pop in the tech into that. Okay. Which is cool. Perfect. So I dig it. Um, I dig Finis. I feel allegiant to them because of my history with John and the whole fin swimming thing. Because your hungry days? In my hungry days. It all comes in this beautiful box and it's pretty easy to set up. I set it up the other day and uh, I dig it. So another tool for the swimmers out there. You know what I dig? Your Rolodex. <laughs> you have a very impressive Rolodex, Listen, sir. I'm 54, so <laughs> I've lived a little bit of life and I've met you know some people along the way. Company founders. I love talking about fixing though. I wish I could remember. I'm gonna have to go back. I have a photo album that I created from that experience with yep. pictures of a bunch of the athletes, and I should have broken that out and reviewed it. You know what? Talking about that's it perfect for show notes, so, baby. Throw up some 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 pics some old, of Rich Roll '96 from '96. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, um, I sh you know what I forgot to point out on what? on the smart goggle, and we'll put this in in the show notes, um, John. John was kind enough. This is not a sponsored thing. I just, I love John and uh, I, I wanna support him, but he was kind enough to offer a 15% discount on these smart goggles, which is a $35 value. If you use the code SMARTGOGGLERR at checkout, and I'll put the link up, you can just go to Finice, but I'll put specific links up to these goggles in the description below on YouTube and in the show notes on audio. There you go. Um, moving on, what do we got? Should we talk about this meatless meat, Ezra Klein, New York Times op-ed? You, you know. I feel like we've done a lot today, but but this is a, a an article that Ezra penned up uh, that I believe ran in the Sunday Times um, that I think deserves just a quick. Did mention. you know he was plant-based? I did. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, I did. He's been he's been vegan for a little while at this point, and he talks about it regularly on his podcast. Okay. Um, for those that don't know, Ezra Klein founded Vox Media. He did. But now he's back with the New York Times. His podcast is killing it. And he's had, I think he's had Bruce Friedrich on. He's He had, um, who else did he have on? He's had a bunch of people on his show that have been on this show that are from the kind of plant-based 
animal rights, you know, sector. Yeah. Um, so he's definitely uh, sensitive to this issue. And I think this article did a good job of explaining the complications of our over-dependence on meat and animal agriculture. And I think it's uh, interesting that he has shouldered this mantle at the times because prior to Ezra being on staff there, the only other person at the times who would occasionally talk about this subject matter is uh, is Nicholas Kristof. Right. Um, he would talk about the chicken industry and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, in Leia this Garces article, they referenced the, the, right, right. the Costco chicken right. and stories. That's, that was all because of the work of Leah Garces from Mercy for Animals, mm-hmm. who's been on the show and has been on Ezra's show. But the New York Times doesn't have a George Monbiot. Right. You know? So Ezra is sort of fulfilling that. I mean, he's not as staunch or. or I, Ezra's much more of a realist, as you will see if you read this yes. article about how to solve this problem. Um, but he does a great job of talking about the implications of meat being on the rise, um, the implications for for future zoonotic diseases, the problems related to antibiotic resistance, the climate costs, um, and in terms of the solution, uh, he's basically calling for. I think where he got criticized on this is this call for kind of government and not government intervention, but. Um, government budgeting to invest in the plant-based sector. Right. Well, it was it was it was connected to. He's basically saying, I looked at the Biden uh, plan for climate, like the climate stuff, and there's nothing in there f- involving uh, agriculture or meat production. Right. Which is in, let me just miss. put a pin in that for a second yeah. and interrupt you because I don't know if you saw this, uh, but unfolding on Twitter over the last 48 hours is this idea that. Joe Biden is going to restrict people's <laughs> meat eating, and that caused this reaction in the in the in the Republican community, including like Donald Trump Jr. saying, yeah. "You're not prying the meat out of our hands," or "I'm gonna I mean, I'm gonna eat twice as much meat today." As I mean, really, none of it is rooted in reality. Joe no. Biden never said that. Like, it's not factually correct in right. any way. Anyway, I digress. Continue. You're saying that ex- that the extreme right is not factually correct. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just but kidding. it was a, a thing that, that went that that just exploded it, on Twitter. It, it, it just shows you like when you're trying to have nuanced discussions with children, it's very difficult because like we're trying now, to have now we're, we're creating have, a welcome mat for all true. people. Adam. But when you're trying to have a, a a nuanced conversation about about something like meat and problems or police and problems, there are a, a there is a, a section of of the public. That is not only going to not listen, but then to purposely use this issue to divide the country, right. and it's yeah. unfortunate. Hundred percent. Yes. Um, I loved how he brought the Good Food Institute into this discussion, because Bruce, friend of the pod, many times over, um, who is the founder of Good Food Institute produced this wish list calling for $2 billion in funding, half of it for research and half of it to set up a network of innovation centers. Um, and Ezra's basically saying that he'd like Congress to actually dream bigger. But the larger point being that it actually wouldn't like, in the grand scheme of the federal budget, like this isn't that much. And it really wouldn't take all that much to supercharge this industry. Right. At a moment when we could benefit tremendously from investment in this sector. So the sector being lab-grown meat. 
lab grown and plant based. Okay, so yeah, both, both, both a little those. bit of plant based, a little yeah, bit of lab grown meat. Yeah, and the, the idea would be, um, you know, you can't. I mean, I think what Ezra is conceding is you, he's not asking everyone to become vegan. It's just not going to happen. People right, are going to eat meat. That's where his realistic, you know, yeah. Right, yeah. and so that the lab grown meat part, part of it is for people who are going to eat meat. And you know, the, I I get the reason I get torn sometimes on on some of this is that like there he even he even calls for uh, there are small producers that are producing meat that are less they're not the CAFOs it's not causing the, the the big problems and they're not as heartless with the with the animals. However, obviously when it comes to meat, ninety percent of the meat that's out there in the market is coming from big corporations. Mm -hmm. And so to replace a big corporation with another corporation that's growing it in a lab, I have less of a problem with that. It's not like we're talking about we're replacing mom and pops with, you know, all of a sudden this big company that's gonna suck up all the dollars um, like Amazon or Walmart has done with mom and pop stores. That's not what's happening here. It's big companies that are involved and they typically, when it comes to animal feet, you know, CAFOs, they basically pay a pittance to the, to the farmer that doesn't even mm -hmm. own the animal mm -hmm. just to feed them as quickly as possible. And uh, they barely pay them. And the, the, the farmers are on leases and a lot of the times yeah, they have financial problems. Yeah, it's an indentured problems. servitude model where they're servicing debt. Right. You know? And the idea of the bucolic you know, family farm, certainly there are some of those, but that's not how we're feeding the world or America. Exactly. So I think the idea, you know, the counterpoint to this is that this is not the solution, regenerative agriculture is the solution. And there's some truth in that, but at the same time, it's a bit of a red herring because although it's certainly better to, if you're gonna eat meat, to make sure that your meat comes from a farm that is dedicated to um, regenerating the soil, that takes care of their animals and provides a, you know, a, a, a range-free you know, life to them and grass-fed and all the like, like the Chester's, the biggest little farm and all of that. Right. The problem is that you can't scale that to meet the level of demand right. that the world is you know, requiring at That's the moment. Right. There just isn't enough land. All of our land is already devoted to these animals. And to the extent that we pivot away from that, people don't understand how much of industrialized plant agriculture is going, it's something like 75% of that is going to livestock feed. Right. Like it's going to the animals, right. right? So we need a better solution. We need all solutions on the table, plant-based, lab grown. You know, It's gonna be really interesting to see how this develops. It's developing rapidly and quickly. Just, um, Josh Tetrick at Just, is now serving uh, lab meat overseas. I think in Singapore, they're yeah. serving it in restaurants yeah. right now. Yeah. You know, there's still some issues around um, getting it to a certain scale so they can drive the cost down because ultimately to win this war, whether it's plant-based meat or lab-grown meat, they're calling it cultured meat now. That's the, that's yeah. the, ter the favorite good. term at the moment. Sounds it keeps good. changing. Yeah. First it was cell-based meat, it's cultured meat now. You have to create a product that tastes as good or better than what currently exists. And it has to be at the same price point or cheaper than what exists right Agreed. now. It's the only way that you win. Um, and I think we're moving in that direction and that's exciting. And I celebrate Ezra for shining, you know, the New York Times spotlight onto this issue. Well, in that regard, you do need government subsidies because government subsidizes GMO corn and government subsidizes, uh, you know, like these industries. But I don't so. think we're talking about subsidies here. We're talking about 
um, a level of investment in research, yes. which is different. That is I, you different. know, when I hear subsidies, I'm like, I, I bristle. Like, I retract. What, what we need to do is get, a, get be done with the subsidies that are propping up, right? You know, corn and and all these other products that are creating cheap, commodified, processed foods that are making people sick. It's a great story because he gets into so much, uh, kind of setting up the problem with animal agriculture and even getting into like the un. You know, so much of the way capitalism works just by nature is that we, you know, all these ripple effects that are net sometimes, some, sometimes they're positive, but oftentimes they're negative, all these negative ripple effects, the producer of a product, whether it's a piece of single use plastic or a steak, they don't have to pay for all that. Mm -hmm. The government picks up that right. tab or the public has to deal with the ramifications. And so if you actually paid the true, kind of real world cost, including cleanup for your messy mm -hmm. CAFO mm -hmm. to have the steak, the steak wouldn't cost 10 bucks, it would cost 50 bucks. Right, and a Big Mac would cost, I think $7 yeah. when you do the math on that. Yeah. If you excise out um, the extent to which it's subsidized. So he gets into that. It's a really good piece, I liked it. Um, Rich, I have a question for you. What's that? Would you eat a lab grown, uh, excuse me, cultured steak? I don't know, I've been asked that before. I, I haven't decided yet. Yeah, you don't I, have I to need decide. To, I need to know, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm on a wait and see approach. I suppose I would just out of pure curiosity. Yeah. But it's not like I'm waiting for that to happen or I can't wait for that to happen. Like I've been eating plant-based for so long, I don't have a taste for that anymore. So it's not like I crave it, I don't need it. It's not all of a sudden like but steak I, will be good for you, right? No, but I, but certainly, you know, when people say they're, you know, the ick factor, right? Like, oh, this is brood, like, what is this? It's, right. it's freak food. But when you really look at the way animals are raised and slaughtered, that, you know, the manner in which they end up at your grocery store, they're pumped full of antibiotics. They're, they're basically living in their own feces. They're brewing with disease or that's what's gross, yes. right? That's the real problem. The so factor. to the extent that we can produce meat without the suffering and out, Without all of these, you know, upstream problems, certainly that's going to be more palatable. But you know, there's going to be an arc in getting culture, you know, to to cotton onto that. Like there'll be an, an adoption period, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and I think that we'll be better off for it uh, because even though it's not something that I necessarily, you know, find myself looking forward to. I like Ezra acknowledge the reality that you know not everyone's going to get struck plant-based or vegan. Right. I did and I you know I I always enjoy it when people you know step into this lifestyle that has done so much for me and I can't evangelize it enough but I'm realistic in in that you know I'm not going to there's there's you know a lot of people that aren't going to be convinced. You know who's been convinced and is now vegan? You? No, Mookie Betts. Who's Mookie Betts? Rich roll. Is this, is he an athlete? He is the See, starting I follow, center. I follow, I follow Finn swimming. He's the starting center fielder <laughs> for the Los Angeles Dodgers, oh, sir. He is. <laughs> Two-time World Series name champion. one <laughs> baseball player in the entire league right now, now. Now you got Mookie Betts. All right. Get him on the pod. Um, all right, cool. Let's do listener questions. Listener questions. Uh, oh, wait, we have one more thing. We do? One oh, more win we of the do. week. You, we do, another win of the week. My octopus teacher won the Oscar. Last night. Last night. 
Congratulations. Congratulations, team, behind My yeah, Oxford's Teacher cool. and Netflix. Any thoughts? Any any uh, thoughts for you? I on love that the movie. Way? I when I when I saw that they won last night, I was super excited about it. And then I and then I found myself feeling bad because I was a little bit what's the right word? Podcast regret. A little bit, like a little little maybe a little bit too jocular and uh you were a little hard on the narrator. Right. Or well, the main guy. As I recall, I mean, I haven't gone back and listened to it, but um, we were celebrating the movie. But I also said, you know, listen, like the sort of elephant in the room is that this guy, yes. you know, is struggling yes. with, with his mental well being. Yes. And I was curious about how that worked with his relationship with his son when he starts putting pictures up of the, you know, he sort of puts yeah. the serial killer board up of like all the photos. And I was like, what's his son think when that. he's doing that? <laughs> you know, and I was, I thought it was, was just like, like a, how he organized his art. <laughs> I was just having a fun lighthearted moment. Yeah. Um, and I forget that a lot of people watch and listen to this. And we got an email yeah. from his wife, yes, the producer his wife, of, of his the wife. show. Yeah. She was very happy that we, that we spoke highly of the movie. And then I felt really bad. No, but she actually said something that I don't think we, we brought up in the podcast is that um, she said she actually does swim with him. Mm. And so like, cause there was, was some speculation is yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, his son, towards the end, his son gets in the water with him, but now his wife also swims with right. the group. And she yeah. at first didn't want to, cause she was kind of scared and the cold and all that. And then she got in there and she's one mm. of the regulars. Right, so yeah. that was a really nice email to get. It and was. Congratulations to all of them. Yeah. Well-deserved. Well-deserved, great movie, beautiful movie. All right, listener questions. Listener questions. This is Stephen from Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, Rich, this is Stephen Jackson calling in from Charleston, South Carolina. And you guys have my permission to play the clip on the air, no problem. Just calling in with a question about uh, what to do when you feel like you've hit a wall, motivation-wise. So I signed up for the 4x4x48 and just feeling pumped after doing a couple of events before that, that my ultra running journey was just on an upward momentum and trained really well for the 4x4 and did really well. But afterwards, I feel like I have just hit a wall with motivation to keep going and keep training for the next thing. So yeah, in your experience and Adam's experience, uh, what are some tips to overcome that little bit of plateau or valley um, after a big event like that and uh, get back on the road feeling good and uh, feeling motivated? So, yeah, man, thanks so much for all you guys do. Love the pod, the books. Uh, I've been in a follower now for two years or so and hugely inspirational. Thank you for impacting so many people, uh, including myself. So, yeah, man, thanks. Bye. Have you been to Charleston? I have not. I've been to Savannah, which is like Charleston Junior. Charleston is such a cool place. They should have a swim run there. It would be a great Do place they not? to. I don't know. They not should. that I'm aware of. They should have one. It's such a cool city, and there's so much water surrounding it that yep. you could like run down these historic streets and then jump in the water. And I don't know. I think it would be cool. It'd be amazing. Um, Stephen, thank you for your question. Listen. Uh, post-race blues is a normal response. Any athlete who's been in the game for any period of time has peaks and valleys, you hit plateaus, et cetera. So I think you're, 
first of all, like it's okay that you feel that way. Um, every athlete has gone through that. It's not abnormal. So I wouldn't beat yourself up for being in that spot. And not only is it okay for you to take a break, I would advise taking a break. You can't just power through race after race after race after race. And it's just this endless upward trajectory. It doesn't work that way. You have to build in periods of rest, periods of recovery. And that kind of mentality should apply to how you plan out, um, not just like your training blocks, like week by week, but also day by day and year by year. Like these things are seasonal, right? And you can't, if longevity is an aim or a goal, you can't just hammer incessantly. You've mm. gotta you've gotta build this into your program. And now that you've had a taste of this, hopefully you can understand why this is so important. At the same time, you don't wanna be that guy who's rubber banding in and out of shape, gaining weight, losing weight. To some extent, that's okay, but you don't wanna get too far out of it that when you get back into it, you have this, you know, very long period of trying to get you know, lose a bunch of extra weight and get into shape. You wanna stay in contact with your fitness. Um, so you never wanna move too far away from it uh, because it's so much easier to stay in shape than it is to get totally out of shape right. and spend all your time trying to get back in shape. And that way you never feel like you're actually making progress. So a couple suggestions that maybe might be helpful for you. First of all, mix up your training and you can do this um, by cycling it seasonally, like I mentioned. Um, try different things. Like if you're running all the time, get on a bike or get in the water or go to a yoga class or hit the weight or do something else that breaks up the monotony of just running all the time, I think is important. And you gotta keep it fun and not so serious. Like if you're always in this performance mindset of chasing these races and these goals, um, it's easy to kind of lapse into this, um, you know, this state where you're taking yourself too seriously and every like every minute you're focused on your training and you're gonna burn out. So mm -hmm. you gotta find the joy in all of it. Um, and I think if you can connect with that, that will build some longevity into this journey that you're on. Um, so again, mixing in some strength, some cross training, other aerobic activities, summer's coming up in Charleston. I'm sure there's, you know, things you can do on a boat. I don't know, like what you, what goes on there. Steven, but. <laughs> there is a swim run challenge in, yeah. in June. There you go. I don't know what his deal is with swimming, but maybe he can get into that. I also think, and this is direct from the creator of the four by four by 48, David Goggins himself. It's important to stop over indexing on motivation because motivation is an unreliable motivator. Yeah, It really is. We We tend to think like, well, I'm not motivated, so I won't do it. It's very fickle, it's very temporal, and it shouldn't provide the foundation of your why. Mm. So instead, I always tell people to think more about it in the context of the values that you're trying to prioritize. So instead of saying, I don't feel motivated, the idea would be to say, I am an athlete or I am somebody who does hard things, right? To create identity around it, as opposed to this fluctuating emotional state that you can't really create for yourself. And mm. I think if you can contextualize what you're doing 
in that manner, you'll create a more sustainable fuel for yourself. I also think that you need to ask yourself if you're training simply to get a result to say you did it or you crossed that finish line or you hit that PR, or are you training because it does bring you joy? It's what, it's an expression of who you are. Um, because if you think of yourself as an athlete or somebody who does hard things, then you understand that we don't train when we're motivated to do so. We train because this is who we are and what we do. I like it. That's all really good. I would just add, uh, or just not even add, but just like emphasize what you said. I think David would tell you, um, if your brain is saying, I don't wanna do it, then you flip that right away and say, if that's what he hears, he's right out the door. Right. If he hears, I don't wanna fucking that's a do muscle, this shit. You know? He's like, just, just that means you have to go do it. And, and you just force yourself to do it. And it does take time, like you say, it's the same thing you're saying. Telling yourself you're an athlete or I'm someone who does hard things is the same thing as saying, well, I don't wanna do it today. Oh, that means I have to do it today. Mm -hmm. So it's just, however you wanna do it, you're training the brain to flip it. Mm -hmm. And I think he'd say that. And the other thing I would say is, um, I'm a big believer in cross training, just like you said. I think it really does help. It makes you, it brings the fun into it. So whether it's swimming or riding a bike or whatever it is, um, and then, uh, you know, the zone two training, maybe he's mm -hmm. running too hard, you mm -hmm. know, like, like zone two, I've found like, I enjoy running like in a way that I never enjoyed it before. Kind of takes the pressure off. Like you yes. can feel tired and it's late in the day or in your, but you're like, well, it's just a zone two run. Right. Like you and don't have to sweat it. Don't be fixated on your Garmin and all the kind of devices and hold yourself to some standard that every time you go out to train, you've gotta be better and faster than you were the day before. Right, if you just like decide I'm gonna lay back and do you know an hour of zone two, mm -hmm. you know, then, then you still do get a sweat, you still do burn calories, mm -hmm. you still do get some, some positive benefits. When you're going on heart rate too, it's not, you're not measuring yourself against a pace where then you either feel bad or good about yourself right. dictated by that. You're just training where you're at. You're not training where you think you should be or where you were last year at this time. Train where you're at. Love it. Good one. Great question. The, all, I should have prefaced this. All these questions are kind of run oriented, which is good. I like, I'm starting to try run to focused. curate this moment. No, no fin swimming questions today. No, we've had I'm enough training merman. for the world championships in fin swimming, Rich. <laughs> enough merman talk for one day. You guys were like the OG Instagram mermaids. Yeah, I don't know. There was no, there was barely an internet back then. I, I, you were the OG internet merman. Uh, all right, Casey from Illinois. Hello, Rich and Adam. This is Casey from Illinois, and I am running uh, Chicago Marathon for the first time in October. And I was wondering if you've had any, uh, like after race, after run. Uh, tips and uh, thank you for all you do. Love the podcast, the books, and it's okay to listen to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Casey. Did he say after race, after run? You know, tips? I thought it was just any race, then after run tips. But let's let's just go with what you got. Um, right, because I saw this typed out before yeah. I listened to it, and now I'm wondering whether I need to rethink this. But I'm going to answer it the way that I feel like answering it. There you Hopefully, go. this is helpful to Casey. First of all, with respect to race tips, there's this maxim that you shouldn't do anything on race day that you didn't do in training. Race day is not the time to test out a fancy new pair of shoes or a new pacing strategy or some kind of 
new nutrition protocol or some gel that you've never tried before. Training is all about testing, 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 so that by the time you, you reach your race, you already know exactly what you're doing. The race is merely the execution of what you've already done. So if you've trained properly and you visualized it, then it just becomes about showing up, enjoying yourself and celebrating the journey that got you there. So having fun, enjoying it, I think is super important. The whole idea of running a marathon is to have a positive experience. It's gonna hurt, of course, but if and when you feel like it's all falling apart and you feel terrible, you should also know that that isn't necessarily a predictor of anything because in a, in a long race, things change. You can feel terrible, then you'll feel good, then you'll feel terrible again. And you learn to just keep going no matter what. And with that, to adapt to any unforeseen variables that get thrown in your direction. A lot of times athletes, they visualize, they train, and they're very attached to the race unfolding in a very specific way. And the minute something goes wrong, like you step in a puddle and suddenly your foot's all wet, or you know, I don't know, somebody bumps you and you fall down, anything unforeseen can throw somebody off their mental game and, and they have a, a hard time kind of getting back into it. So I think a sort of understanding that there's gonna be variables that get thrown in your way and learning how to be resilient with those is super important and something to, um, prepare mentally and physically for in your training. Uh, in addition, on race day, you should know what your strategy is and you should implement that, meaning run your race, not the race that the person next to you is running. It's very easy, especially when there's a lot of people around you and people are passing you, that you can get caught up in what others are doing. And it takes a certain level of, of of confidence and discipline to not let any of that impact your plan that you've set for yourself. So sticking to your plan is key. Uh, and that also means that on race day, you're gonna have all this extra energy. You're gonna be very excited. There's gonna be a lot of crowd and whatever. Um, and if you find yourself feeling like you're like five miles in and you feel amazing, mm. A lot of athletes throw their race plan out the window and just start speeding up because they feel great only to like explode at mile 18. Mm. So if you feel amazing, resist that urge to go faster and stick to your plan. Um, in terms of after race, which I think is really the, the, the core of what Casey um, wants answers to, um, I think after your race, it's important to do an inventory of what went right and what went wrong. You can write it out in a journal just you know, in freehand, like everything that, that you thought about, every emotional experience, what it felt like physically, where it went to plan, where it didn't go to plan, you can mine the data and all of that is um, you know, an ample opportunity to learn from the experience that you just had. Um, but the important thing is in the aftermath of the race, have fun, go to the beer garden, whatever, enjoy yourself, make sure you hydrate, fuel up, stay warm, You know, ice your legs. I think active recovery in the days that follow is super important. If it's your first marathon, you're gonna be unbelievably stiff and have trouble going up and down stairs or even walking around, but you've gotta, you shouldn't just lay in bed, you should get up and, and move and go on walks and try to get the blood flowing in a, in, a, in, a, in a low grade way. And that'll help flush out all the lactic acid and help you recover a little bit more quickly. 
but there's no need to go running for, you know, I don't know, a week or 10 days or something like that. Like allow your body to heal. And I think another mistake a lot of athletes make is they wanna get right back into it too quickly and they underestimate just how much their body gets beat up mm. in, in you know, running something like a marathon. So giving your body the space and the time to repair itself um, takes longer than you might imagine and providing that opportunity for yourself, I think is important. Go to the beer garden. Advice right. I never thought I'd hear Rich Roll deliver on this I'm not podcast. going to the beer. Well, I can go to the beer garden. I'm not gonna drink the beer, but he can drink the beer. Yes. That, that's what he wants to do. Um, I always enter any sort of race with one plan. Hmm. Just don't come in last. Why, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong coming in last? Yeah, the Lantern Rouge. I'm sure as I age, I will even let that go. <laughs> this is the extent of your competitive fire. The extent don't of my ego, egotism. I don't well, want to I would, I would suggest not even thinking about that at all because that means that you're gauging your performance off of other people. I know, it's true. You should just think about executing your race the way that you trained for. I know, I'm, I'm glad we didn't get into uh, my shaming of not wearing goggles when I swim. Mm -hmm. We'll have to do that another time. Yeah, oh, that's right. We didn't even talk about that. So Adam and I will quickly <laughs> recap this before the next question, the final question. Yeah, I'm talking to Adam on the phone the other night and he's telling me about how his face mask, his big, his, what do you call? I don't even know what you cut. The, I took the, I took three waves on the head on my way in from my last swim, and uh, which was fun. I enjoyed getting thrashed and ragdolled because it was not that big a surf, but I did I did get messed up and I lost my mask. I wear a he I wear a mask. A mask. <laughs> and so mask. <laughs> I just can't, I'm like, listen, buddy. All right, as somebody who's competed in swim run competitions, <laughs> yes. From an etiquette perspective. Mm. A real swimmer would never wear a face mask. I'm a breaker so of etiquette. Get on the goggles and dispatch this. It's good that it got lost. It's time, <laughs> all right? It's embarrassing <laughs> to go swimming with you in the ocean and you're wearing a face mask. You are not the octopus teacher. <laughs> Wait. You are a swim run athlete. <laughs> no, no, no. Let me push back just for a second. I wear a sphera mask by. Uh, I, I don't Aqua care. Sphera. What are you talking about? Well, the sphera mask was designed for open water swimmers. Listen, Aquasphere also makes goggles they do. for open water swimming, but I would highly suggest the Finis line mm, of goggles, Finis. including the smart goggle that <laughs> might interest you. <laughs> Can I interest you in, in a um, smart goggle? There you go, took my lashings. So while we're at it, yeah, no, no more masks, dude. Come All on, right. what are we doing here? I, I, I promise. <laughs> All, right. All right, let's finish this. Here we go. One last question from a couple of badass adventurers in the great North. Hi, Rich and Adam. This is Asha and Savannah. We are two girls from Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. And we have decided to run 500 kilometers barefoot, starting this run on June 21st, 2021. So we're one month into training and have just a few left, which is why as plant-based vegans, we're hoping to link arms with you to receive the proper nutritional wisdom to make this 500 kilometers a success. Rich, your journey to your first ultra gave us the confidence that we are capable of this feat. We know we can do this. So call us anytime and 
as we like to say, keep rolling on. And just a side note, you can totally play this on the air. You are welcome to call us at any time, legit. And we really do look forward to rolling on with you. Awesome. Ciao. All right. First of all, a couple things. I feel like this is much more about like, hey, Rich, will you call us than it is <laughs> like a legitimate interest in, in in me answering this question. No, but this is, this but is you awesome. calling them. <laughs> Asha and Savannah, were they both talking back and forth It seemed on this? like it, it seemed like it, yes. All right. I love these women, this is awesome. <laughs> 500 kilometers barefoot. I like how they have only been training a month and there's only like two months left or less yes. than two months before they're gonna do this. So that's amazing. I like that they're plant-based vegans and I'd be happy to link arms with them. Maybe I should call them at some point. Um, so wind in your sails, this is very cool. I, I wanna know more about this adventure. Are they running on pavement, I right, suppose? Right, like or what trails. Is, what or exactly trails. is going on here? Do they have roads in Kalawanya, British Columbia? I think they do, right? That's a terrible I, thing to say. I think they have roads. <laughs> Did they pave the roads up there? That's pretty far north. I'm just kidding. Um, you guys are awesome. Very cool. I'm here to support you 100%. And although I'm not sure you really need any advice because I don't know that that's what this is about. I think nutrition is very personal. So specifics, I don't think are gonna be super helpful to you guys. Like I said, in the answer to um, the previous question, test, 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 test all this stuff out. You guys have you know, plenty of time to work out your nutrition regimen in the lead up to this adventure. So when you start, you should know exactly what works for you and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. If you wanna stay on the whole food tip, um, what's worked for me and what has worked for many other people are things like sweet potatoes, which are easily digestible when you're running at a low pace. They kind of work like nature's gels. Dates are great, almond butter is great, coconut water for hydration. Um, I think you need to figure out some estimate of how many calories you're burning per hour. And then from that, figure out how many calories you need to be, you can reasonably take in on an hourly basis to make sure that you're replenishing yourself as much as possible without upsetting your stomach. Mm. And the upset stomach thing is the big thing, right? Like when you're testing, you have to almost overdo it to figure out where that line is and which foods your body is able to digest better than others to figure out what's gonna work for you. And also understanding that no matter what you do, when you're tackling an adventure like this, 500 kilometers barefoot, you are very quickly gonna go into a caloric deficit. You're not gonna be able to eat that much when you're running. When you're cycling, it's a little bit easier, but. Um, you're always gonna be coming from the rear in terms of meeting your body's caloric needs, which means it's really important that you figure out a schedule so that you're taking in as much as you can, like I said, without upsetting your stomach, um, even when you're not hungry. Like there'll be moments where you're like, I'm not eating, you know, and you need a crew member who's gonna say, we knew you were gonna say that, but you have to eat right now mm. because you're not, you're not eating for that moment you are eating for the following day. Mm. So even though if you feel great and you don't wanna put anything in your stomach, you have to understand that's gonna imperil your body's ability to repair itself and come back the next day and the next day and the next day. So super important to stay on top of it. If you're open to some uh, 
performance nutrition products. Uh, I can shout out a couple of podcast sponsors. You can for slow carbs, they're great. Yes. Um, it's, it's very easily digestible. You can put a ton of calories in a water bottle and just sip it. Um, and it, it will really, that's been very helpful, especially for something like would this. You, would I would highly you, suggest you check that out. Would you suggest out. like regular, like every 30 minutes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a sip, every hour I'm gonna have food? Yeah, it could thing. be. I mean, everybody's different. Like some people, every twenty minutes, you know, it's it's fifty calories yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So you just create this slow. What you don't want to do is like spike your blood sugar and then have uh, and then have like a crash. You know, that's that's what you're trying to avoid. So the kind of slow carb, um, uh, wh like what would you call it? The, um, the, the 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 carbohydrates that are in something like you can are designed to not spike that blood sugar, it but to kind of give it. you a slow drip, yeah. you know, of yeah. energy, which is exactly what you're looking for. For electrolytes, you know, coconut water is great, but you really want to make sure that you're staying on top of that proper ratio and balance. So, Element, you know, another podcast sponsor, they're great for that. There's no sugar or artificial ingredients in that. You know, I, from I doing love the, it. Doing the the Goggins thing that yes. it worked for you. So maybe check those out and make sure that when you're getting those rest periods, the recovery in between, that you're doing everything in your power to um, not just replenish those calories, but repair your body for the next day. So ice baths, if that's possible, um, if you don't have a Theragun, I'm just shouting out all the sponsors, you Theragun, are. you know, but these are products that that work and are helpful and to make sure that you, you know, are getting the sleep that you need. That's the most powerful well, recovery it, enhancer. It looks like um, Kelowna is on a fingerling lake. Mm, oh, did you look just, up the map? Just east of Vancouver, wow. where it's like the British Columbia wine country area. You know how you see, there's, there's wine country up there. Uh -huh. So I think that's where it looks like. Is and it, so it can always depends on the route, the right? But if they're near the lake, maybe they can get it. Get, yeah, if there's no the ice lake. bath, just like jump in that lake for right. a while. But I don't know if they're doing this. Are they? Are they? Do they have a crew? Are they being supported? Is there a van? Are they just going straight through? Are they going to sleep? Lots of questions. And so I have many one questions. other question. How do you? I feel like it's they did that on purpose. So then now I have to call them. Yes. And how do you care for the bare feet, like when you're taking I, breaks? I don't That's know. They got to call Tony Riddle. I have no experience with that. Yeah. I really don't know. But yeah. that's that's Tony Riddle's department. All right. So, anyway, it was uh, a wonderful question. You guys are amazing. And we yeah. look forward to hearing more about your incredible run. Sending you love and strength. We are. All right. I think we did it. We done did it. Thus concludes another successful episode of Roll On. I deem it a success. I think it is. Yeah. Can I, can I fact check a couple things? Sure. One. Point of information, Mookie uh, plays the outfield, mostly in right field, not uh -huh. center field. Is that supposed to make me care about baseball? Listen, he's plant-based and he's one of the best right, players. That's in the awesome, league. Yeah. cool. Just like Chris Paul, plant-based, great mm -hmm. basketball player. Um, and then uh, the other thing is you asked me if, if it was me who'd become plant-based. Yeah. I'm 98% plant-based. What, what, what's with this 2%? What is with the 2%? Yeah, I don't know. I'm a 2% omnivore. Listen, Brogan is lining up to take your seat. <laughs> yeah, I'm not helping so myself. Get on board. <laughs> Brogan, don't use that against me. <laughs> um, all right. Is that all the fact checking we're doing today? <laughs> that's all, that's all yeah, the fact checking. I'm going to fact check you on your, your swimming face mask situation. We're going to talk about <laughs> I'm gonna that. Bring next time. I'm going to bring it in. I'm going to bring it in. I just ordered it. Burn that thing. All right. We're done. All right. Uh,
I feel good. You feel good? I feel great. Awesome. It's hey, it's good to be back. It is good to be back, yeah. right? Uh, follow Adam at Adam Skolnick. I'm at Rich Roll on all the stuff. Leave us a message, 424-235-4626 to check out links to everything we talked about today, including um, the stuff about all the products. And I don't know, we talked about a lot of stuff. Ezra Klein's article. Um, check out the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. There's also a link to that in the description below. If you're mm. watching on YouTube, please subscribe to us. We would really appreciate it on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, all the stuff. Uh, and uh, that's it. We're uh, gonna be back here in two weeks. We took a, we had a week off, so a lot of energy. Yeah, was I, was I too much? Was I too no, much? We were, we, it was good. Yeah. We made a symphony. <laughs> symphony of conversation yes, more music to come next time uh, appreciate all of you thank you for tuning in and listening i don't take your attention for granted and i do not produce this show alone certainly adam skolnick sitting across from me played a small part in thank today you, <laughs> thank you sir and of course uh jason camiolo for audio engineering production <sighs> show notes interstitial music all kinds of behind the scenes stuff for which he does not receive enough credit mm. blake curtis who created the video version of today's podcast. I was in here Sunday afternoon. Blake was in here putting the finishing touches on the, uh, the Jeremiah Ellison episode, burning the weekend hours. If you haven't checked nice it out, job. you should watch it on YouTube because we have all this B-roll from the square and kind okay, of watch the rest on Minneapolis. YouTube. Yeah, it's really nice. He did a great job with the edit as he always does. Jessica Miranda for graphics, Davey Greenberg, Minneapolis native. Oh. Couldn't make the trip. Yeah, unfortunately, because he was on vacation, but he's here today to shoot some amazing portraits. Georgia Whaley for copywriting, DK for advertiser relationships, mm. and theme music, as always, by Tyler Trapper and Hari, who are in the process of trying to name their band. You mean something. Tres Primos? <laughs> Tres Primos. Yeah. <laughs> We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that's gonna make Maybe, it. <laughs> I, I really want to redo this this theme music. I think it's time. I think the the audience would rebel or revolt. Can't we use one of their new songs? I don't I don't mind the music because people have kind of an attachment to it now, but I don't like how I say the rich roll podcast. <laughs> like, come on, man. We could do better, can't we? Listen, um, can Brogan and I do an a cappella number? I would welcome that. <laughs> Let's make that happen. Let's Jason could write a little music for that. Jason. We'll do it. Let's do it. All right. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here in a couple days with another episode. Notes from Minneapolis to be continued. Until then, peace, plants. Namaste. Yeah.